This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday to you. Uh, hope you've had a great start. Uh, we know that uh, the Duchess of Cambridge sure did welcome their third child into the world. A topic Terry Woo-hoo! loves discussing. Terry, give us your so, insight on this beautiful baby boy. He just demoted his uncle. Yeah, so. Every, with every child, his uncle keeps. Harry doesn't deserve this kind of attention, right? He, Harry's just trying to do his job. He's trying to be nice. He was kind of a party animal. <laughs> He's really cleaned up his act lately. Yeah, Harry's and getting with married. with every nephew that's born or every niece that's born, every child that's born from his brother, he gets further demoted down the line. So this is like a this is like a sensitive spot for you, Terry. And then the other side is all weekend. I, whenever I'm online, Twitter, whatever, it's kind of looking around. You start yeah. seeing Meghan Markle. This is her preferred brand of purse. This is the kind of dress she's going to wear. Okay, what's your point? This is her. This is Meghan Markle. Her china pattern for her wedding. <laughs> this and you're like, oh, it's just starting. It's going to get so bad as people focus on a wedding that's not theirs, that they're not connected to, that they don't know these people. Well, but they're going to have parties and there's going to be tea and crumpets because that's what you do or whatever you do. I to love watch a tea royal and wedding. crumpets. Oh. I think Terry's a member of all, the royal family. All the national just networks. Knows. All the networks' new shows. Will suddenly turn into just royal watchers, and everyone yeah. will have their 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 British uh, just person they pick up along the way. That their their whole job is to just stare at this family and yeah. find any nugget of information and go. Uh, royal watchers say that um, you know. And just, right. I yeah. think it's I think it's royal watchers say. I was going to do the we accent, we haven't I haven't seen this much excitement out of you for so years. Well, except bad. until the last release of. Some Marvel comic. That comes video. out Saturday. Tickets set, ready to go. Actually, it comes out Thursday, but I'll see it. So Saturday. the line of succession, getting back to your point, yeah. to Prince Charles, uh-huh. then to Prince William. Yep, then to his boys. Then to Prince George, mm. Princess Charlotte, and this new prince that was born today, which now, it used to be that they would displace the female sister, yes. but and she would be moved further down the line. But now there's been some new edict. Well, well that, now now the issue – I found out over the weekend because the queen actually came out in you a meeting. It. Well, no, it just it was there. She came out in a meeting and actually um, endorsed her son Charles to be her successor. Ah. Right? What, what now, color oh, purse did she have I don't when know. she made that statement, I don't know, Terry? but it was her birthday yesterday fuchsia. apparently too. She looks wonderful in fuchsia. The queen doesn't have to pick her son. She can pick somebody else in the line to be king. To be to, to succeed her at, at, at the at the throne, she could have just skipped Charles and so, gone to William. There was speculation that she might have been thinking about this. I think the sad thing is that Prince, Prince Andrew. She also lost a corgi. One yeah. of her dogs recently died. Oh. See, so eh, it's been a tough week for the royal family. Except what a blessing. and then there was a, a blessing, but then there was a demotion along the line of. I think Succession. Prince Harry's totally fine with it. So. Prince Harry is now in sixth uh, position. Yeah, and but he's marrying Meghan Markle, and they've got great photos of them, and, and we can and, talk about she's what got their some great wedding purses, party. Apparently, her shoes—it's amazing. I didn't know you were that into the clothes and the stuff. I learned recently she's endorsed a type of yoga. Really, 
I, I just – there's too much information. I'm not even trying and I know things. That's what's wrong with this situation. Don't say you're not trying. I should be able to shield myself from all royal information. The next time I have a question about the royal family, I know who I'm asking. Oh, I know exactly where I'm going. <sighs> Terry South. Apparently Sorry. he knows all about their bags, their <laughs> shoes. Good stuff. Let's get to the other headlines that are important to Terry. Terry, what else should we be focused on? French President Emmanuel Macron will visit Washington beginning today to speak before Congress and meet with President Trump. And in a Fox News Sunday appearance, he said he will use this time to promote a long-term U.S. occupation of Syria, including nation-building programs. We will have to build a new Syria after the Islamic State is defeated, and that's why I think the U.S. will hold... Uh, is very that's why I think the U.S. hold is very important. So we have a hold on removing troops, I think is what he's oh, talking okay. about. Macron said, Why I will be very blunt, the day will be finished, the day we finish this war against ISIS, if we leave, definitely and totally, even from a political point of view, we will leave the floor to the Iranian regime, Bashar al Assad and his guys, and they will prepare a new war. They will fuel the new terrorists. Wow. We can't just level the place and walk away. We have to yeah. rebuild. Yeah. The U.S. rebuild. You know, so my point is to say that even in the end of the war uh, against ISIS, the U.S. friends or our allies, all the countries of the region, even Russia and Turkey, will have a very important role to play in order to create this new Syria and ensure Syrian people to decide for their future. Sure. Create a foundation. Don't just walk away and cause a problem. He'll probably share that with Congress today. Yeah, And when he has a, a dinner with the president. And so President Trump's week begins by hosting the dinner with Macron at Mount Vernon tonight. A press conference with the French leader tomorrow, followed by his first state dinner of the 15-month-old administration. And then on Friday, the White House meets with uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So, two, two big world leaders in the same week. This is a big deal. Granted, there was a funeral over the weekend, and he stayed at his golf course. Beautiful funeral, different, by the way. Different issue there. Did you watch that? That was great. That was wonderful. I, I was telling my wife, there's a photo. Yeah. You got four former presidents, yeah, and the wife of the current, and so in, 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 and she was sitting having really a lot of fun with President Obama. They right. were laughing, and so you give it like ten, twelve years down the road, you look at that photo. Like, where was where was the president? Oh, he was at his golf course. He didn't want to cause any distraction at the funeral because well, if he walks in, there's a lot of security. Even though there's a ton of security, anyways, because oh, you know no, there's, there's four former yeah. presidents, but there's more. I think there's plenty of security. Yeah, but he felt like there'd be more, so I'll just go to my golf course. He maybe he doesn't like funerals. So I love a good funeral. And on Some Saturday, the pool report said President Trump will spend the whole day at his golf course. It didn't say what he was doing. Didn't say he had any meetings. Just said he's at his golf I course. I bet he was watching. I guess I don't know. Funeral. I just think maybe she go to funerals. Yeah. According to more than a half dozen sources who have been in the room with Trump for his interactions with foreign leaders, the president views international relations as a chemistry between individuals. Trump's interaction with foreign leaders, often improvised, often hot and cold, disregard diplomatic conventions and briefing materials. Instead, he freelances, offering advice to foreign leaders like he does to old real estate pals. Germany's Angela Merkel is, by uh, disposition and culture, not as warm as Macron from France. Yeah. Right? So right. we got the two leaders coming in. Here's some ideas. He goes, it comes off not as harshness or coldness, but just more distant in personal meetings and over the phone, said a source familiar with their interactions. Uh, says one White House source. Uh, Trump finds the Germans frustrating. He thinks they're ripping off America on trade and blames them for many of, many of NATO's problems.
problems, saying they're a rich country, but not all spending, but not spending close to enough on defense to meet NATO's commitments. Wow. Added to all that, he says he has no chemistry with Merkel. When she visited last year, Trump thought she would respond well to his joke about how she and he had something in common with Obama surveilling them. Trump thought it was funny. She was stone-faced, just stone-cold on the joke. It irked him. Trump said privately to staff afterwards, she didn't even respond. She could have at least smiled. That was the best line of the day. Huh. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, everyone has that sort of interaction <laughs> with somebody where you crack a joke, that you, can't, you get you nothing can't back, and you're like, not Ugh. like somebody when they're a global leader. You have to, you have to interact. Right. But his, his choice of interaction is to just sort of, as it says, freelance – just have a, a, yeah, a, a friendly conversation yeah. instead of having a diplomatic. Yeah, you know he doesn't. He doesn't like that because he probably doesn't think it's genuine. Yeah, where uh, other people see, you know, this is how you do diplomacy, and yeah. he's all about breaking norms. Yeah, and those you types laugh of things, at so. you laugh at the joke. Yeah, so I don't know. Hmm. It's an interesting look at. Uh, it's going to be a fun week. How the president's week's going to go? Nashville schools will stage a lockout Monday as a manhunt for the suspect in the Waffle House shooting continues. The school effect, schools affected have been searched and cleared by local police. Although students will be able to move freely within the building, no one, uh, no guests or visitors will be allowed inside. The lockouts at the designated designated schools continue until the manhunt is ended or the police say the suspect is no longer in the area according to the uh, Metro Nashville Public Schools. Travis uh, Ranking, 29, the suspect in the shooting early Sunday morning that killed four people and injured several others. He's, uh, he's walked away from the scene, and they're still tracking him down. During the shooting, James Shaw Jr., 29, rushed the gunman, grabbed the gun's barrel, pulled it away, threw it over the Waffle House counter. He suffered a gunshot wound and burns from grabbing the gun's barrel, and he would like to not be referred to as a hero. Wow. So let's go ahead and... Just, Chalk that one up, uh, but again, that's a that's a big deal, man. Yeah, he he. Uh, four people died, but he, they feel this guy stopped the gunman from uh, doing much more damage. Oh, wow. He had a, I believe, a AR-15 like rifle uh. as he was doing this. So, in other news, this is our, our final story. Chris Tadlock may think twice before accepting anything from a Delta attendant once again. Flying back from Paris to the Colorado woman accepted a free apple handed out by the attendant and stuffed it in her carry-on bag, only to discover at customs that fruit would cost her $500. Oh, boy. A customs agent asked me if my trip to France was expensive, and I said, yeah. And Tadlock after, her, uh, Tadlock, after her bag was randomly searched, she says, I didn't get why he was asking that question. And then he said, it's about to get a lot more expensive after I charge you $500. She asked if she could just throw the apple away or eat it, but the agent said no. It's really unfortunate someone had to go through all that and be treated like a criminal over a piece of fruit. Um, she also lost her global entry status. Wow. So you can't just fly to, you know, you have to go through extra checking and extra extra uh, searches because you came from overseas rather than trying to sneak an apple as in. you go through. She blamed Delta for handing out the fruit without warning and says customs should have cut her a break. Customs and Border Patrol responded by saying that all agricultural items must be declared. And a Delta spokesperson said, we encourage our customers to follow U.S. Customs and Border Protection protocols. Wow. She plans to fight the fine in court. That's the old, yeah, that's the old, and airlines always try to do that old fruit trick with you. The fruit trick. So that you lose your global entry status. Mmm, apples. All right, up next we're going to be talking with our Washington insider, Joe Cannon. Find out uh, what's going on with Kim Jong-un, with Paul Ryan. And uh, what's that, what is that going to do with the entire Congress now that the, the head's stepping down? 
plus uh, just other topics. Man, trying to do what we can to help your life be a little easier. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, it's time to bring on our favorite Washington insider, Joe Cannon. Joe is a, a past chairman of the Utah Republican Party. He's also been an editor of a, a of the Deseret Morning News and um, is also our political insider. He just has some great insight. He served with the EPA during the Reagan administration. He he knows a lot of people, and uh, we like to just get his insight and find out what really is going on back there in Washington, D.C. Joe, how are you, my friend? I'm good. Thanks, Matt. Thanks good to have you. Me. Good to have you. What, uh, any, anything that we should be uh, focused on with, I mean, like M- Macron is, uh, is in town from France. Apparently, uh, Angela Mer- Merkel will be coming soon. And um, the first real state dinner, I guess, is is going down. Anything of import do you think will come out of that? I, I don't know. There's so many different things that they're going to be thinking about. But one thing I do here is is that they're very anxious to preserve something in connection with the Iran deal. Right. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure those are the reasons they're coming, but apparently they're going to be – the European leaders are going to be talking about that and trying to – persuade uh, President Trump to, hey, let, let's salvage what we can out of this deal. Mm. And uh, I, I don't know that'll work. I mean, yeah. Got some, you, you, you have the president himself is very strong on this, but uh, you couldn't have anybody more articulate and opposed to the Iran deal uh, than John Bolton, who's you know sitting a few feet away from your office. The <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a new little that's a new little fun uh, mix. Add to the mix there. Hey, um, I wanted to ask you: uh, Did you get to watch President or uh, uh, Barbara Bush's funeral? You know, I watched part of it. Just you know, I wouldn't say sadly, but uh, my own mother died yes. last week, and we had her funeral uh, on Friday, and lots of family, and so I only saw snippets of it but uh wow i mean what an impressive person uh, role model example uh all, all of the women in my family and actually everybody in my family is a huge fan of of barbara bush but especially you know my wife my daughters and just a lot of people uh such an inspiration just you know just a classic classy person yeah i mean it's it's really interesting to see um, and, and just a great mother and that family to they're just they're just it just seems healthy. You know what I mean? It's fun to just have health in our in yeah, some of our leadership. Yeah, yeah no, she was so she candid, refreshing, yeah. direct. And, you know, I think exemplifies so many things that uh, people want to see in 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 a person. It's also powerful, I think, to see a moment where past presidents get together um, and 
and you see, I mean, it, you see the closeness really of the Bushes and some of the Clintons, or at least I, I think Bill and um, Hillary Clinton. There was kind of a fun affinity, it seemed like, between Barbara Bush and President Bill Clinton. Like he was like one of their adopted boys. It's it, it's just I think it does. It's good for the country to to be able to see that uh, it's not all about the politics. That there is a personal side to all of this. Right. Sure. Yeah. Did do you um, as we kind of go forward into other topics that tend to divide us? Um, we are seeing some interesting movement um, from Kim Jong Un about announcements about his his I guess willingness to at least maybe look at halting the nuclear testing ahead of the talks with President Trump. Is any of this should should we be trusting any of this? Is this what's going on? Why and why do you sense that he is so willing to make such big changes? Boy, I. Talking about not knowing the mind of anybody, I, I don't know the mind of him uh, or the president on, on on this thing. But somehow it seems to be moving in a good direction, in a yeah. good way. Uh, so I, I I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, Kim Jong Un has said, "Okay, I'm I'm willing to look at this. I'm going to do this." And uh, and and President Trump is. You know, saying, "Look, if we don't if we don't get denuclearization, then we're we're not going to have anything." So he's he keeps is keeping the pressure up, and Kim Jong Un keeps saying, "Okay, let's meet. Okay, great. You want you want to talk about denuclearization? Well, then we'll do that too." Uh, you know, I, but who knows where it will end? There, there's a lot of pressure here that I think obviously we don't see. A lot of people in that neck of the woods would like to see this thing resolved, including China. And Japan and South Korea, mm. we've got all these. Um, you know, a lot of people would like to see a successful resolution of this. And by, <clears throat> excuse me, successful, I think that means no nuclear threat. <clears throat> excuse me. And in the case of South Korea, uh, maybe there's a, a reunification possibility here. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, I mean, wouldn't that not so, be amazing? If this all happens under the watch of uh, President Trump, do you, how much of it would you attribute to Trump? Well, you know, uh, he's, he's such an anomaly in, in, the, in how he approaches things. But you have to say a lot of the things that he wants to have happen are happening, and some of them are in, in a pretty good way, including including this one. You yeah. know, the, the fact is uh, – People were stunned. Everyone, I, I was stunned. Everyone was stunned. We said, "Oh, by the way, we're going to be meeting with uh, the North Korean leader. We, me, the president, going <laughs> to be meeting with what? this dictator from North Korea." We're going, "What is that all about?" Well, is it a fluke? Well, no. It turns out there's a lot behind it. You know, um, you sent Pompeo over there, yeah, uh, to to have preliminary discussions. Uh, you have, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you have this deep involvement by. Uh, by the neighborhood, by China, yep. and and for sure South Korea. Apparently, the South Korean leaders played a very large role in this. I mean, a they don't want to get bombed by nuclear bombs, but b I mean, there's a deep, long interest in. So why don't we just get together? You know, why why do we get together? So I I don't know. I mean, you have to say we wouldn't be exactly here if it weren't for Donald Trump's. Um, Pushing it and and probably do in some part to his pugnacity. Yeah, no, right. Being so tough, huh? Is is so, it? Um, I mean, and again, 
it it seems like uh, an interesting thing too to find out that Ma, Ma, or is it Mike Pompeo went over and interviewed or, or met with him. Um, he Mike Pompeo was the is the director of the CIA. Soon, I guess, uh, has to go through all the hearings to be the Secretary of State. But how strange is that? To, to and is that strange to have this high level meeting with your CIA director and and North Korea? Yeah. Well, I think I think that uh, that put to me anyway put a lot more flesh on the idea of the actual meeting because you know there's a whole history of secret diplomacy of of meetings before meetings. I mean, we all talk about Nixon going to China, but actually Kissinger went to China first, mm. and uh, then K- Kissinger had you know a whole series of secret meetings with the North Vietnamese. But before the conclusion of the war. So I, I think the fact that Pompeo went over was um, sort of adds to the to the gravity of the situation because he went, had the meeting. After it's all disclosed, the meeting looks like it's in, in better shape than it was before. Yeah, that's uh, legit. So, so I, I don't think there's anything particularly surprising about uh, him going. I mean, normally you would have more of the diplomatic side going, but of course he's the nominee or Secretary of State. So, yeah, why not? Uh, you know, it's, uh, I think, um, and it, to, to me, the, the, that's an added dimension in a in a positive way for where these uh, talks could go. I would just say it's not a foregone conclusion that he's going to be the Secretary of State. I mean, I, I think he will be. I think it's a foregone conclusion he'll be the Secretary of State, but he may be the first guy in history to be whose name is set to the floor of the Senate with a negative vote of the relevant committee. Really? Just there. Yeah, that's a, they just don't like his politics, the Democrat. I mean, the Democrats generally wouldn't like anybody coming through, but why would this be so much more? I mean, they've already approved him for CIA director, right? I mean, Dianne right, Feinstein with, already with, approved him. With a fair number of Democrat votes. I, I think this is uh, different now because the Secretary of State. Uh, the Democrats are feeling emboldened, I, I think, and they just want to you know, make a statement here. Some Democrats, at least one Democrat, maybe two, have said they will vote for him on the floor. But the real, the real issue in, in the uh, committee is that Rand Paul has said, hey, I'm a no vote. Mm. And, and then it turns out that Senator McCain probably won't be there to vote uh, because of his health issues and some surgery issues that he may not be there. So that is what tips it. If, if all the Democrats vote against, and then you've got a re- Republican voting against, and then one member missing, all of a sudden you have a no vote from the committee. Mm. Wow. Boy, that'll make it exciting, won't it? Huh. Um, talk to me about what you sense is going on with Paul Ryan. Uh, he's not going to run for re-election. Again, apparently will end his term as Speaker of the House. But when you when you think of that, um, why why is everybody bailing out? Why are they not wanting to keep going? He's in one of the most powerful positions in the country. So uh, that's a good question, because you have a, an unusually high number of Republicans incumbents not not running. And, uh, of course, leading the list is a guy named Paul Ryan, who's the Speaker of the House, which is a much sought after, much envied, and, as you point out, extremely powerful position. By the way, number three in line to be president right. of the United States. Uh, so um, 
I, I honestly I don't know, and I haven't really heard any good speculation as to why he said that. He stepped out. He could be what he said. I mean, one of those rare things. It could actually be what he said. Maybe I want to spend more time with my family. I generally I view that as an excuse when politicians say that, but I don't know. What it, what what I do know is that it set off a very interesting chain reaction among people within the House, and, and that maybe one reason he stepped down is that it's just really, really hard to manage uh, the uh, House Republicans. You know, uh, some it's, it's there's not just one Republican Party. There are two or three Republican parties right. represented in that body, and, um, you know, some, some pretty fierce fights have, have occurred. Who, so who right do you now, think steps like, up? Yeah. Yeah. So right now, I mean, we don't know because uh, a lot of dynamics could change with the election. So the leadership election occurs after the election, the congressional election, midterm elections uh, next November. So um, right now it looks like it's going to be Kevin McCarthy. Uh, He's the number two guy anyway. He's pretty well liked. Ryan has endorsed him. On the other hand, people say that Steve Scalise, who's the number three guy in line, yeah. uh, and you recall being injured by in the in the, in the shooting baseball games shooting, um, he's pretty popular. Uh, and whereas some people have said he's endorsing McCarthy, he actually has never said that yet. And then you've got this whole body, the uh, the uh, Freedom Caucus, which is founded uh, one of the co-founders of that is Jim Jordan, a very very smart tough um, congressman from Ohio, um, you know, his name is starting to to come into the mix. So mm. it'll be interesting. I, I think if, in, if for some reason the Republicans uh, keep the majority, uh, that, could, that could dictate one result. If they're in the minority, uh, maybe the members would be willing to be a little more uh, you know, open to other people coming in. Wow! But, but it, uh, actually, the, the, the original question that you said: there are a lot of Republicans retiring. Some of that is out of fear. Some of that is because the Republicans have posed upon themselves term limits. So you can only be a chairman of a committee for so many terms, and then you're out. And when you're not the chairman, and you go kind of back into the regular order of things, um, that's not very appealing for people who who've worked their way up to a, a strong position of power in a, in a committee. So a, a very a significant chunk of the retirees are, are people in that category who aren't going to be uh, chair, chairs of committees anymore. Interesting. And you have some that are in marginal districts. You have some that are just saying, that, wow, this is just too, too miserable being back here. <laughs> this is a nightmare. Um, what, uh, what do you sense just about the whole – uh, investigation. Um, it, it, do you sense that he will fire Mueller? Will he fire Rosenstein? Um, is he going to, you know, is anything going to come from this co- whole Cohen investigation? Oh, wow. That is such an interesting circus, that whole oh. thing. I mean, you, like you just pointed out, like a, a whole host of issues. What's going to happen to Rosenstein? Uh, so Rosenstein is maybe on the outs, and people say, well, he's gone. He's a political appointee. Uh, on the other hand, then you have Sessions hinting, well, wait, wait, I'm, I'm kind of liking Rosenstein. <laughs> maybe if he goes, I go. And, right. Know, uh, 
then then you have Rosenstein telling the president he's not a target in the Mueller probe, you know. Right. And then you have the Kobe tapes coming out. I mean, you have all of this. And then you have the, you know, the raid on, on Cohen, his lawyer, his personal lawyer, which raises a whole host of issues just for me as a lawyer. I mean, but, but uh, you know, that it's, it's extremely unusual to go after the lawyers because they have this ancient, not just an American, but this ancient lawyer-client privilege thing. But they did. They went in and got a whole bunch of stuff. And now who knows what's on the, their tape recordings, their memos. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's such a stew. Uh, at one level, really interesting. Another level, kind of depressing. Um, uh, the whole idea of, of special prosecutors is you know, it, it puts them outside the normal legal system. And a lot of people have had, had uh, opposition to this. I mean, right now, Democrats think it's a great idea, but when Clinton was being right. investigated, they didn't think it was a good idea. And in fact, they abolished certain aspects of this, but not, they didn't get rid of the whole idea. So, um, yeah, you have just a stew of things, and, you know, there's, there's uh, just – it's a gigantic Rorschach test. Whatever <laughs> happens – People who hate Trump say, oh, it's the end. His presidency's over. And, you know, the, for example, the release of the Comey memos, which were, I thought, kind of interesting, is if you hate Trump, the Comey memos showed nothing. They, you know, nothing happened. It's a faithful representation of the meetings and discussions that were had. And, and Trump comes out looking bad. If you, if you like the president and you don't like this special investigation thing, you say, well, wait a second. Comey leads classified information. Maybe he should be the target of an investigation. Which right. Turns out, I guess he is. Now so, he is. Yep. Uh, so, wow, it's such an interesting stew. I I couldn't make any prediction. You know, the people. Are, uh, it seems to me, although there are leaks out of the FBI, but it seems to me Mueller is keeping his counsel. Uh, there's been, you know, numerous people have said that uh, the president's probably not a target. So the question is, you know, where does that go? I, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm a, I'm sorry, I'm a dry hole on this. I, I, I don't. <laughs> well, you're getting lying. Don't have any inside knowledge? Yeah, you're like the rest of us. What? Uh, anything else that we should be paying attention to, Joe? I mean, there is so much going on, but uh, what? What really should be? Do you think? Watched. Well, I, I don't know that. I, I, I mean, I, I know that your audience is much broader than Utah, but there was a state convention. Yeah, uh, held a political convention held in Utah on Saturday with a couple of interesting results. He had, um, you know, it's an off year, but he had John Curtis, who was uh, uh, elected to Congress just a little while ago to, to fill Jason Chaffetz's seat. Uh, you know, he he only got in the convention before leading up to his election, the special convention. I think he only got nine percent of the vote, but then he he won. Mm-hmm. Now he got 59% of the vote, which is just a hair short of not even having to have a primary. So I think it, it, in Curtis's case, it shows, uh, wow, good, a good, strong move and, and uh, you know, consolidating his position. And from a person who's not generally from the, the base of people who come to those conventions, it uh, looks like he's, you know, politically handling himself uh, pretty well. The big shock was, of course, uh, some a guy who's actually a doctor and a lawyer named Michael Kennedy, uh, 
actually beat Mitt Romney in the uh, in the convention. So I think it was like 49-51. So Mitt is going to have a primary. Uh, I don't think it's going to change the outcome very much, but uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to watch that because it turns out, in, especially in off-year primary elections, the, a lot of the people who come out to vote are like the people who go to the go to the convention. Really? Yeah. Well, so, and that's uh, that's the big. That'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, that's the big caucus idea, isn't it? That uh, a lot of people trying to do away with the caucusing because they don't think it represents the the real base. But um, Joe, we appreciate you. That's great insight. And uh, again, I mean, doing what you can. You there's there's only so much information out there, and you can you can be in the know. But the reality is doesn't mean that President Trump's going to follow anybody's lead or do anything necessarily consistent. Um, but uh, we appreciate Joe Cannon again. Joe Cannon is our Washington insider. He's also CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation, which is an organization trying to lower your fuel costs here in the United States. We will continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll do a little Coach's Corner up next. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. You know, um, if you didn't get a chance to see it, uh, the funeral of Barbara Bush was really an amazing, amazing thing. Especially in when you watch the present world of uh, politics, you can't quite see how any of these people can get along. And then at a funeral, you see sitting there the Carters... Uh, George Bush and his wife, the Clintons, um, the Obamas, and Melania Trump is there. And you just think, wow. I mean, each one of these dynasties have fought against each other. Each one of them, you know, did everything they could to take each other out. And yet they sit there and uh, show this incredible force of... um, of positivity, of goodness. Some of it, though, I think was just Barbara Bush. I think she was uh, an amazing person. Married one, you know, married one man, had and the and basically the only man she's ever kissed. Um, it's it's really a beautiful love story to find out how much that that they loved each other. Uh, some of the history, I think, we're going to find out. They were saying that. Barbara Bush um, always seemed to like be taking kind of the back seat, always being quiet and 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 uh, and kind of hiding away a little bit, but really uh, very involved in some some pretty major um, decisions in the White House with both herself and her son. Um, so, if there is incredible power in uh, in the people in our lives, and when you have a dynasty like the Bush dynasty. It couldn't have happened, and everybody said it without a mother and a and a person like Barbara Bush. Very straightforward, very direct. Um, she said, though, a couple of quotes from Barbara Bush: "Never lose sight of the fact that the most important yardstick of your success will be how you treat other people, your family, friends, and coworkers, and even strangers that you meet along the way." They were telling a story about the. Um, uh, a because she was big into literacy, big into reading and and helping um, the reading and and literacy movement. She was talking about a, an American who was um, coming in. They were doing an event where uh, a person who had just learned to read would actually get up in a big meeting and um, he would read the Constitution of the United States. 
And uh, he got there and he was a little weirded out. He was a little afraid to have to get up there because he just barely learned to read. So Barbara Bush got up and actually asked if he could, she could read it with him. And she got up and started reading, and he would read with her, and together they were reading it. And then paragraph by paragraph, Barbara Bush just stopped reading. And then at the very end, you could see this beaming gentleman who was reading and and reading all on his own, um, basically because of some of the decisions and positions she had taken on reading. Uh, and then saw a man in need and went up and helped him get through a very difficult time. So how powerful is that example? Uh, another quote is, if human beings are perceived as potentials rather than problems, as possessing strengths instead of weaknesses, as unlimited rather than, than dull and unresponsive, then they thrive and they grow to their capabilities. They thrive and they grow in their capabilities. Powerful examples. One more quote, believe in something larger than yourself. Get involved in the big ideas of your time. Great uh, great role model, I think, for all of us. Great role model for being uh, a strong, progressive mother uh, and a progressive wife um, and, and having a voice. Powerful, powerful example, I think, to all of us. And uh, I think we're grateful and, and uh, I'm appreciative as just – a citizen for having examples like that out there in this uh, crazy culture that we now live in. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. Up next, we'll be talking about the problem with a trust but verify approach. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Nan Russell is an author, a speaker, a mentor, and a workplace consultant. She is the former vice president of the multi-billion dollar QVC shopping network. We had her on the show a while ago, and she talked to us about a trust but verify approach to life that we often find ourselves caught up in, and we should what we should do, how we shouldn't maybe be so dependent on the trust but verify movement. I, in the interview, I asked her, what are some ways that I can affect trust? One of the first things that you need to do is you need to want to do that. Now, we've just made assumption that you did, but I I put that out there because it's what we were talking about earlier. We so use this word in strange ways that... Um, people will talk about, oh, yeah, of course I trust you. Or, <laughs> and, and, and the decision about trust is, is a decision that requires learning some skills about how to develop it. So, so one of those is the, this first step that that leader needs to take, and that is that they need to give trust first. But before they do, they have to give some thought to <laughs> – their own perceptions. We worry a lot about people who, you know, can I trust you? And that comes up in this issue about giving trust first. Can I mm. trust you? Do the people need to earn it? And what most leaders need to do is turn that around and ask themselves before they start developing this skill of trust giving, am I worthy of someone else's trust? And we don't usually go there first. And it requires us to think about our own competence, our own self-trust, our own involvement in relationships, and some other things first. So I'm going to kind of put that over to the side and just say that's a given. Um, So once we have that, then this element of giving trust first that we talked a little bit about before the break 
has to do with being able to use trust as a currency, giving it incrementally over time in different ways to different people and have accountability on the other side. And the more accountability you get, the more trust you get. So, you know, there's this continuum that says, you know, incredibly powerful teams sometimes work on this this trust level that they've built over time, which is, hey, just tell me if you get into trouble. But if yeah. you're if you have a new employee, you might say to that person, run it by me first. Um, those are all ways in which you start to do it. But the first step is giving it. And if you believe people must earn it first, you're going to have a little challenge there. Interesting. Yeah. So so there's different levels depending on a person's competency, their ability, their time with you, their history. Interesting. Yeah. So, so you have to kind of adapt that. Yes. And for the most part... Um, you know, that's a natural thing that we generally do um, as leaders, but our belief structures get in the way at times. Yeah. So we just have to keep them in check. And, it, and like you were saying, we have these we, – we have to know what our belief about trust is and how we use it as a currency. That was such a great question that you said that we need to ask ourselves about, am I worthy of someone else's trust? That's almost me – starting to take the place of others to try to figure out how I impact trust in my society or my organization. Yes, and it has some complications with it because we know based on a lot of research out there that there is this better than average effect that we all are affected by. And that means, you know, for the most part, we all think we're better drivers, <laughs> we're better right. leaders, you know, we're smarter. Than yeah, well, we know it. Come on now. Yeah, of course. And so we don't realize sometimes this, this concept of self-awareness, um, we don't always see that that the way other people may perceive our actions may be something that causes them not to give us their trust. Because, you know, we can give trust, but if we don't get it in return and it's not kind of this ongoing back and forth, you're still not going to build a genuine relationship that gets great results or has a great culture. Right. Um, is it true, I mean, it must be true that if there's some, if there's trust pockets in our lives and in our organizations and in our families um, there must be some people that are more gifted at, at managing the trust than others. Um, I, I think there, there, that's true, but for the most part, there's well, there's two things. One, there's a belief structure. There are some people believe that no one is worthy of trust. So, so huh. if if they have that belief structure, then it's unlikely that without greater awareness and choice, um, they're going to be able to do that. But for for the other people who, you know, want to develop trust, um, those, those elements definitely come into play. And so if I have a manager that I work with and his, his paradigm that governs his management style is trust no one, they will always right. let you down. Um, right. if, that is their, if that is their paradigm, then I probably ought to be realistic about this person's ability to lead a, a, an incredibly trusting pocket or organization. Yes, um, and it's going to become more crucial as things start to shift, and cultures are shifting. But one of the things that we see happening um, in the last couple of years is that the, the top performers that organizations need are really starting to say, hey, I, I'm not going to work in an organization or for a person where I can't do great work, and I can't do great work when someone doesn't trust me. Huh. Yeah, and they'll self-select out. Interesting, which means 
um, I guess if you are a high trust culture and you're in, in a trusting culture and you know how to manage it and make it mutually beneficial and hold people accountable to it, you could actually attract people that buy into that trust paradigm. Yes. And that is where you'll see organizations that have a lot of collaboration, teamwork, innovation, engagement, yeah. and, you know, great results. Now, that, that quite honestly, you know, the, the reverse argument is not true, and people get that confused, too. You, you can be highly pro- profitable. You can, um, be a, you know, have a company that contributes in, in certain ways, and, and it be not a trust culture. Yeah. Um, but people ad- adapt to that or they choose that. And, you know, that can work, too. So so we can't make the argument that this is the only way to do it. Right. But it is certainly a way to do it that creates, I believe, you know, the best for everybody. Hey, as we, we need to wrap up, but tell me, what, what would you say is the one thing that everyone could take away from our discussion today and go tomorrow and immediately start implementing that would foster or nourish more trust in their relationships? Um, I think one of those things has to do with this concept that we haven't talked about, which has to do with integrity and behavioral integrity. And people get that very confused. And the key here is behavioral integrity, i.e., what you say and what you do. If it's in alignment, um, you're going to start to build trust. And so that awareness coupled with the intention for mutually beneficial relationships and giving trust first is going to be a great place to start. That was uh, Nan Russell and uh, helping us understand a little bit better about trust and uh, the trust but verify approach. We'll continue to uh, be doing what we can to lift you higher, help you understand not just trust but all the concepts that make human relationships flow. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Happy Monday to you. Dr. Matt here along with Terry and Becca. The gang is gathered, spent all night working the interweb. To find the latest and greatest information for you today. Well, actually, I was just up late watching the post. Oh, is that what, is that what you Yeah, did? I looked at the clock and went, wow, i got to get up in the morning. i got to go to bed. It's kind of a compelling movie. Is it? A little bit. Interesting. A little interesting. We ought to maybe have you do a little review of the post. Nah, it's fine. It's an old movie. Go watch it. Yeah. Old as in, you know, two months or it's whatever. Two months old. Uh, a lot of shoot up in that one. A lot of uh, the post. Yeah, a lot it's of just, journalists fighting each other well, and yeah. then getting crazy. And and then the government trying to stop the New York Times. They actually did, and then the Washington Post just ran with it, even though yeah. they knew they were going to get sued. And, oh you know, yeah, great. politics is the new, you know, uh, high in, high intensity, high stakes, high stakes action movie. Action movie. It's not really. It's Lots just people at desks. Yeah. People in people's front rooms because they couldn't trust their newsroom to keep the story quiet. Some girl selling lemonade. You make we'll it see. sound boring. It kind of is. There's a lot of like like tension, but if you just sit back and watch it, it's kind of like, okay. Let's get to something that I know you're much more Ooh. interested in. The Duchess of Cambridge gives birth to a baby boy, yeah. uh, which means we now know who is fifth in succession, in line of succession yeah. to uh, the crown. There you go. 
This is exciting news. Mm. When when we when it was announced, Becca was very excited. And she went. Oh, she had her baby. Well, which is a neat thing. I did. It's a great, cute family, wonderful yeah. baby, it's and great. you got all good. Like, uh, here all we go. Grinched on it. Kissing all the people that are just overwhelmingly focused on this royal family, seeing that our country was built on the concept of pulling away from that concept. Yeah, but none of these people were there. But we're so enthralled with everything they do. And, oh, what did she wear? And I'm not going to pay taxes. And... I just think it's a cute baby. They're, they're essentially oh, national. you're making her cry. <laughs> they're national parks, right? In yeah. our country, well, we have national different. parks. In their country, they support this family with tax dollars. But it's a, it's a, it's a portable, walking, human right. national park. I understand. But they're national parks. It's a boy, by the way. I understand. It's a boy. Good uh, job. Maybe the few, maybe a future king. At least a prince. We know. Yeah, it's a big maybe. deal. Right. And then this poor, the oldest, the old is it George? Is that the oldest child of William? Yeah, yeah I believe See, that is that prince poor George. kid. His entire life is going to be micromanaged. People are going to focus on everything he does because he could be the king. Yeah, but what's wrong with that? You can't live Every, a normal life that way. Know, but you guys micromanage your child. Not really. You call him Prince, and no. then you you knight uh, him with a noodle. No, not really. We just want him to go outside and play with his friends. Just go play with your friends. <laughs> Get out of the house. Please. Anyway, congratulations uh, to Kate Middleton and Prince William. That's Yeah, good job. It's awesome. It's exciting Knocked stuff. it out of the park. Good and job. And Prince Harry can relax. He's been moved down a notch, and now he can really just go marry Meghan Markle, and yeah. life will be great. And just... Roll with whatever comes his way. Yeah. You want me to go to another country and represent the crown? I'll be there. I'll be wherever you want me to go. Yeah. That's good stuff. Uh, Against Prince Andrew also was moved down. Yeah. He, so he, he gets bumped further down yeah, because sorry. he's never seeing the. Let's get real, Prince Andrew. It's time that you just maybe go find a future right. for yourself. You're not going to be the king. Anyway, all the, uh, that's that's always exciting. I think I think we'll, we'll keep covering it. A, because Becca a, loves it and Terry yeah. loves it. And if there's a commemorative plate, we can maybe order those for the That'd show. That'd be great. I love it. That'd be perfect. See, I wanted to start hanging commemorative plates and spoons up, but there, couldn't find a wall a for it. A thimble or two? I think we know what poster to get Terry for his office. Totally. Yeah, I know right. exactly. Maybe an office, too. Let's get uh, let's get you the headlines. Uh, Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? Nashville police say a 29-year-old man is to thank for preventing more deaths in a fatal Waffle House shooting Sunday morning. James Shaw Jr. suffered non-life-threatening injuries, including a minor gunshot wound when he rushed the huh. gunman, disarmed him, and threw his rifle over the restaurant's counter, a, po- a police wow. spokesperson said. The suspect, a gunman identified by police as Illinois resident Travis Ranking, was thought to have been reloading his assault-style rifle when Shaw Jr. tackled him. Police later found additional ammunition cartridges in the jacket of the suspected shooter that he left behind. But Shaw Jr. says he doesn't think of himself as a hero. He says, I don't really know. When everyone says that, it feels selfish. He was quoted as by saying, I was just trying to get myself out. I saw the opportunity and pretty much took it, he said. Police are still searching for ranking, who allegedly opened fire on the restaurant customers while... Uh, in a, a, what, varying status of dress, apparently, yeah. is an, as another element of this. He wasn't wearing any clothes. 
Uh, he killed four, injured several others before Shaw disarmed him. Police say he was known to law enforcement from previous interactions in other cities. There's a story that the, the gunman's father or the police took the guns away and then his father gave them back or something. So guns had been removed and then he got them back somehow. Oh, wow. so all sorts of issues will come up because of this because... He feels that Taylor Swift was stalking him is another story I saw. Well, so, you know, I, mean, I haven't seen Taylor Swift out lately. Right. The other guy was throwing money over a fence that we robbed the bank. Yeah, and that's right. Money. Yeah, so I mean, she all has, of this is her fault. She gets implicated in all these stories. Poor she's, Taylor. All she's trying to do is, you know, just, just make good music. Make, well, yeah, maybe she'd still try. Uh, South Korea has switched off the towers of loudspeakers it uses to pump propaganda into North Korea along wow. their border in the latest step of diplomatic healing between the two countries. That's the speakers cool. have blasted K-pop. If you want to look that up <laughs> on YouTube, you'll understand why that could be used as uh, what mental warfare or whatever is you're trying to... Isn't that Gangnam style? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, they blast K-pop and news reports critical of, the, of North Korea in hope of turning soldiers and civilians based near the border against their country. But ahead of a summit between the two countries later this week, South Korea decided to bring the broadcast to an end early Monday morning in order to ease the military tension between the two Koreas and develop peaceful, summit-like atmosphere. That's nice, yeah. A spokesperson said. North Korea announced over the weekend that it had suspended all missile tests and will shut down its nuclear test sites. A direct hotline between the countries. The two leaders have been set up. They tested it. It sounded like they were standing next to each other. That's great. It's kind of interesting. We agree we won't test nuclear weapons, and you agree to turn off your K-pop. There you go. K-pop is very destructive. Apparently. Look at it. You can see. Oh, It's the new nuclear weapon. The latest version of President Trump's travel ban faces a showdown in the Supreme Court this week. The justices will hear oral arguments on Wednesday in a challenge to the policy. The first two versions of the ban targeted people from only a handful of predominantly Muslim countries. The third version also included restrictions on certain travelers from North Korea and Venezuela, although those restrictions were not challenged. The lead plaintiff, the state of Hawaii, argues that the policy still violates the Constitution by favoring people of other faiths over Muslims. Huh. The Supreme Court ruled in December that most of the ban could take effect while the legal challenge was working its way through the courts. Okay. So that's Wednesday. Well, that's a big day. But we won't really know anything about it because they always take weeks and months to actually reveal the findings of their It seems like days. President Trump has more stuff getting to these courts than others, maybe. Yes. I mean, at least he's good in court. I guess he's he's causing uh, legal bills to be paid. Uh, finally, a Berkeley, Washington teacher who brought a deactivated bazooka into his classroom last week was placed on paid administrative leave, officials said. Alex Angel, who teaches AP history and world history at Berkeley High School in Washington, was placed on leave April 11th pending an investigation into the incident, said uh, Charles Barres, a spokesperson for the school district. A video was posted on social media, as it always is, showing Engel holding the bazooka over his shoulder while explaining how it was used roughly 70 years ago. So he had the big tube. Yeah. He did not have the shell. Yeah. So he had like a, an empty gun at school. Except this being well, you know, a bazooka. Well, a really big gun. The weapon was apparently not armed. The district did not say how it became aware of the incident. A former student who has taken the, those history classes in the past said that, uh, yeah, he's brought that to class before. Oh, he brings it all the time. <laughs> Another student said that he had numerous historical artifacts in his classroom, including a World War II backpack and a medieval shield. 
He's trying to bring history alive, people. He By used the way, a bazooka. You know that that class was the most interesting oh, day yeah. of class. Right. We just don't want our kids to learn anymore, I guess. He brought a bazooka. Now, is there any chance that he could have maybe cleared that with the district saying that I don't have a shell? Yeah, they, they would have said no. It's just an empty tube to show kids what it looks like when we talk about a bazooka. Well, and even if he did, I feel like by the time the video hits social media, you start it starts spreading really fast. People right. are going to demand a response. Is that the equivalent of bringing, say, an unloaded gun into the classroom? Kind of. A bazooka? I mean, it you, seems really how, extreme. How common are bazooka shells? Yeah. Yeah. Like, are they accessible? Well, like, well, like, yeah, it's probably, like, connected to the bathroom key. <laughs> it's a kind of, yeah. It's, it's just one of those things that... I, I think it being absurdly large and yeah. sort of a extreme sort of weapon that they might have said, okay, but I doubt it, just because it's a weapon and people don't want those in schools. Yeah. But, you know, he had a bazooka. He's done it before. The kids are like, it's fine. It's fun. Yeah. The problem is, too, they all would have pulled their phones out. Then you'll have a picture of some teacher pointing a bazooka at people. <laughs> and then he's like, it's not even loaded. It's unloaded. This is fun. And then they tase him. And then yeah. one thing leads to another. And the next thing you know, there's a lawsuit. There you go. Oh, what's happening to this country? Can't even bring a bazooka to school anymore. Darn. <laughs> Darn. It's a good one to write down, though, you know, yeah, in the future. It's a, yeah, it's a great – make a mental note, leave the bazooka home. Hey, up next we're going to be talking about uh, do people really get promoted based on their competency, right? Are the best – you know, are the best – let's say you're a salesperson and you get the highest uh, sales numbers. Would that make you the best manager? Is that the way we should be promoting people? Interesting research up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. worked in a job where, um, you know, everyone's working hard. You're all trying to get the best numbers you can. Then they need a new manager and they hire the the number one numbers getter, the person that can really bring home the numbers. And then that person gets into the management position and you realize they're not a very good manager, but they're really good at getting the numbers. Well, our next guest is here to talk about that principle. That's called the Peter Principle. And uh, it states that the selection of a candidate for a position is based on the candidate's performance in their current role rather than on their abilities relevant to the intended role that you're, you're hiring them to do. Joining us today is Dr. Alan Benson. He's a professor at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, and he's here to talk with us about what the Peter Principle is and a study that they conducted that might uh, blow up some myths in how we should be hiring people. Dr. Benson, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much, Matt. I really appreciate the invitation to you join bet. you this morning. This is such, I think, interesting research. The Peter Principle, it's been around for many, many years. Talk to us, I guess, d- define what it is and what made you so interested in studying it. <laughs> Great. So um, you're right. So it has been around for many years. In fact, uh, the original book uh, was published in 1969, so almost 50 years ago. Wow. And it was written by an academic, but um, an, actually an educator who was uh, who just uh, actually has a satirical book, and he noticed that it seems uh, that 
whenever you've an organization has an opening, it's just like you said, they seem to uh, pick the person who has the best numbers. And and that really poses a problem when you imagine that the person who has the best numbers might not necessarily be the person who would actually be the best manager. Mm. Um, and so it's a really hard idea to test. You know, you can imagine that uh, that someone who has the best numbers might become like a merely okay manager, but that was still the best uh, the organization's best guess for who to promote. And so what we did is we looked at um, a really neat data set, uh, data that comes from a company that hosts other companies' data. So they have um, over 200 firms and tens of thousands of salespeople, uh, many of whom were promoted. And we saw, uh, asked two questions. First of all, uh, did, these, this, did uh, their, these organizations promote the best salespeople? Uh, and did these best salespeople tend to make good managers? And I think what you can uh, you can kind of anticipate what we found. Uh, organizations did uh, tend to promote the very best salespeople, but kind of the irony is that these great salespeople actually didn't tend to make very good managers. In fact, we saw the better the salesperson was, uh, the worse the manager became. In other words, the the worse their their subordinates did after that new manager was promoted. Mm. And so uh, and so we say that, you know, this looks an awful lot like the Peter Principle. This looks like organizations are promoting bec- people who can make the numbers, uh, and then they come into the management role and they don't really deliver anymore. But you actually found this inverse relationship. So the better the numbers, the worse the manager? Yeah, that's right. That's it's amazing. so strange. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's so and, interesting because, um, again, we do this com- – everybody, it seems like, all companies could fall into this belief that you know if, if, they are, if they're a good salesperson, they'd probably know how to manage people, but it's just not the case. Yeah. I think for us it was also fun because uh, you know, we were presenting we – were, we were looking at salespeople, but I think you hear a lot of the same stories when it comes to like the best engineer doesn't make the best engineering manager or the best – in academia, you might say the best academic uh, doesn't make the best department chair or dean or, right. or school president. Um, and I think the trap is that we take people who are great at their jobs, and then we change their jobs so much when we promote them to become a manager. I mean, you can even see the best researcher may be the worst teacher, but we still make them teach, right? So so now I've got to sit there. For my there. students who might be listening, I... <laughs> Yeah, hope, Maybe. hope not. Yeah, but but yeah. It, it's it's an interesting idea that we I guess we just kind of think is this just about efficiency? Is it about lazy? We're we're too lazy to know how to measure. Um, why why do we do this so naturally? Especially if it doesn't yield the result. Well, that's a great question. So um, so the funny thing is that organizations might actually be uh, be smart about this. They might say, well. We can promote the best salesperson, or we could promote somebody who's well liked in the organization and has these leadership skills. Um, but if they pass over the best salesperson and that salesperson wanted a promotion, then that could be really bad for future incentives. And so it might not necessarily be that organizations are making mistakes. It's just that these mis- they're kind of paying for they're, they're buying incentives and they're paying. With uh, with the quality of their of their managers or the or the uh, allocation of talented people to 
the places where their skills can best be used. Mm. So they really don't know how to incentivize other ways other than maybe promotion. Yeah, and I think that's one of the big challenges. I think it's uh, promotions serve such an important role in organizations as an incentive device. You know, and people feel like they start at the, the, the lowest rung of, a, of an organization's ladder. And if you're on a ladder, then sometimes you just feel like you need to climb it. It's so true, isn't it? Um, so uh, what, what, what are you hoping people get from your research? What, what were some of the – I guess what were some of the learnings, but what are you – where do you think this is going to go from here? Um, so, I think, um, so I think one of the learnings for me is I think when you look in the, the data and as we've been kind of sharing this idea with practitioners, um, also I think that – uh, one thing that really struck out to me was just the value of a, of a good manager. I think the flip side is someone who's a talented manager, you can really see them uh, bringing up the best in their team and their salespeople, in this case, perform so much better. Um, and so I think you can be thankful for, uh, for good managers just as you can see the flip side where we see the best salespeople sometimes becoming not so good managers or oftentimes not becoming good managers. I think um, there's a lot of things that organizations can do too to kind of uh, fight against the Peter principle. So one thing that we see, especially in engineering and other and like science, is that uh, organizations will have multiple ladders. So there'll be one ladder for top uh, individual contributors, people who are really great programmers or really great academics or however and another ladder for people who want to go down a more managerial track. That way you can keep people in kind of the roles that they, that they like best and that they're best suited for. And I guess um, you'd, have to, you'd have to compensate them um, because a lot of times it's easy to compensate like a performer because they're generating revenue on that performance. But maybe you'd have to just kind of keep some of the managerial track people – uh, motivated, I, I guess, other ways. They, they, you'd have to maybe promote, give them other types of benefits while they're waiting to manage. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, and I think that can be a really big uh, challenge too for individual contributors. Uh, so, um, sometimes, for example, if you have a top, if you have an individual contributor track, you could be in a situation where individual contributors uh, who are um, real, real stars and they've reached the top of their career ladders might be managed by people who are actually rather low on their own career ladders on their managerial track. Right. And so, um, and I think one of the oldest principles in management is that, uh, is that managers should make more than their uh, subordinates. And, but this is one of the solutions. If you have a top individual contributor and you want to reward them for the values that value that they bring to the organization, then you're going to have some of these same tensions going on too. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I've I've actually seen a, um, an organization where like the top producers that have been producing for a long time end up almost receiving like a tenure. They get tenured in the company and they, oh, reach, yeah? they reach this level where they they really are almost like untouchable. And they they mm-hmm. they get to self manage a little bit more. They still they still work on teams so that they can share their best practices. But they really reach this level of uh, you know untouchable. Yeah, and that's really neat because you know I think 
what's striking is that we usually think about about those kinds of individuals. That's kind of something you might think more about uh, being appropriate for a manager. But as you mentioned, you know, sometimes you can see that happening for individual contributors as well. Yeah. And so it's kind of uh, it shows how creative organizations are in trying to keep people where their skills are best suited. <laughs> it's is is this. I mean, I know this. The Peter Principle was first, I guess, written about in '69, and and the book came out. But I mean, it seems like with a faster growing and and faster moving workplace, with the diversity of how we can work, where we can work, and uh, you know, people wanting a, a different kind of life, is is it now? Is it time to that the 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 market itself is demanding a change to this principle? That's a good question. And I think, you know, there used to be a time uh, 50 years ago, um, actually even when this book was written, where uh, where people would spend most of their careers in a single organization. Yeah. And, um, and so academics call those internal labor markets as opposed to external labor markets where people move across companies more fluidly. And... Uh, people have written about how, you know, those kind of internal labor markets, those career jobs, uh, they're breaking down. And as you mentioned, people are moving across organizations and perhaps there's more of a need for some of that flexibility. Um, and so I think that could be absolutely right. I think part of what organizations are trying to do in their techniques is trying to, for example, make roles for those star individual contributors. They can bring them into the organizational structure. Uh, they can perhaps have more autonomy. They can um, they can continue to do the jobs that they're brought in to do and that they're good at. And I think a lot of organizations are trying to be more flexible so that they can more uh, do a better job of really interfacing in a really competitive labor economic environment. Yeah, absolutely. Again, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Alan Benson, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Work and Organizations in the Carlson School of Management of the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. And um, Alan, as as you look at this, um, you you studied a sales organization, but I guess uh, your findings would apply. Do you think across any any type of organization? Yeah, I think they would apply pretty much to any organization where the activities that uh, kind of a more rank-and-file person of the of the organization are doing different jobs than their bosses. And I think that's kind of an inherent uh, tension in a lot of organizations. I think it's particularly pronounced in sales where the activities of a salesperson could be different than a, than a sales manager or an engineer where an engineer is obviously doing things different than an engineering manager. Uh, but I think it's very general. I think there's a, going to be. I think management is a real skill, and that, uh, and that they're doing things that are very different than their subordinates. We just had somebody on the show uh, recently too that was talking about the fact that a lot of times we assume managers or leaders in organizations. We we kind of just assume leadership is an inherent ability. It's a trait that maybe doesn't need to be fostered. It's just something you've got or you don't. And But uh, the person was arguing that we probably need to, to actually have a track for leaders, like have a track, a very specific track, and it could be, I guess, leaders or managers that where they actually are they're, – they're not just performers or tacticians or technicians doing a job. They're actually skilled in management and in human development and, or, and creating 
uh, organizational systems and I mean do you think do you think this research will support that and and eventually does it make kind of the non-producer track just as important or the manager track just as important as the producer track? Oh, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, one of the really neat things that organizations are doing too for uh, potentially for high potential college grads and um, and other people coming into organizations is to have kind of a fast track uh, leadership development program where they see many different parts of the business Maybe they'll spend six months in one location, um, for example, at a manufacturing plant, then six months at headquarters, and then six months at a distribution center. So they see different parts of the business um, and perhaps different product lines. And the goal is really to um, is to develop leaders, uh, not necessarily someone whose skills are entirely specialized, but really someone who can build organizations. Yeah. And and you know, you asked about like the uh, about you know, like again, like one of the, I think what I think one of the main lessons of this study is is this really shows that managers have special skills and good leaders. Sounds like you, you know the previous um, uh, your your previous discussion. It's uh, you know those those skills are really valuable. Right. Um, they and they're not just because you're good at one job doesn't mean that you're going to be. A great leader, mm. and won't it? Wouldn't it make you happier? I mean, it seems like if I'm a top performer and I'm really good at it, um, get off my back, right? Like, so <laughs> a couple of things I see is that it's almost like we need to make a more dynamic environment where don't make me go be something I'm not good at, so I can earn more money and then be miserable and not get to do what I do well. But let me be. Mm-hmm. Let me do what I'm good at. I mean, I've even just seen sometimes how we restrict um, how much time they have to be there, how much, what what specific activities they need oh, to right. be doing. I mean, it's all of these old organizational systems that may not play um, in this more dynamic world. Right. Yeah. So I think one of the other big trends in in work is that uh, is that what we call high performance work systems, which means there's a set of practices that work well together. So uh, I think one thing that would be uh, also bringing in people to the organization who are really good at working autonomously uh, and who could be really good at their at their jobs, giving them training in different aspects of the business, but then giving them a lot of autonomy once they arrive. And so by doing, and then also paying them according to their individual contributions. And so really... Um, it's kind of like a, a nexus of different practices that organizations can use to attract the people who are going to work best autonomously, train them to so they have the tools and the knowledge to work autonomously, and then give them the rewards for uh, and the opportunity and the space to to excel at their jobs and to meet the deliverables that you set out for them. That's and I think powerful. These are, yeah, I think, and I think that's one of the such a such a neat trend, and it's not something you just see, like in uh, not just in sales or not just in in uh, in any one setting. It's something you see in factory floors. It's something you see um, in retail environments. It's something you see uh, for all sorts of jobs. And I think, um, and I think it is really neat to see that some of these organizations that are adopting these practices are, are very successful. They're, they tend to outperform those that have 
that seem to be more stuck in a traditional model. Right. Well, and and the kind of the older school, the older, yeah, the kind of the older school or older mentality. I mean, at some point, what we need are results, and we I need you engaged and. Engagement's falling off like crazy, and probably because we keep putting people where they don't necessarily fit, where they don't even want to be, but that's the only way we can get more money. Uh, Alan Benson, we appreciate you. Again, Dr. Alan Benson is a professor at uh, the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities, and uh, an expert um, in this uh, field in the Peter Principle, this discussion about how to really uh, motivate people to, to, and to be good at management and make sure we're hiring people for what they're really good at, not just what they um, what they have historically been able to do. Uh, interesting stuff. We'll continue the journey. Up next, we'll do a little Coach's Corner, see if we can to also improve your personal life as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. You know, uh, life's uh, it's it's not always so easy, is it, to to achieve, to become what you want to become, and to hopefully lead your life in a healthier way. It's sometimes it's you're too tired, you're too worn out, and and we you know every year we set New Year's resolutions. Then you know by February we're done uh, pretending and. Then we just try to make it through the rest of the year. But one of the things I thought we could do is talk about some ways that we might be able to to just relook at how we how we try to improve our lives, right? So I'm a big believer that our thinking impacts our feelings. Uh, how we think about something impacts and, and, and might drive what we want to th- to feel or what we do feel about uh, a certain situation. Our feelings impact what we do. Our actions. Our actions impact what we become, what we're getting. And so we could work on our thinking. We can work on our feelings. We can work on our doing or we can work on what we're becoming and what we want to become. But in the end, a lot of times we just spend more and more time focusing on what we do, right? Uh, Especially Americans. We're, we're, We're about what we do. It's about the action of things. But there is a lot of power in changing just how you think. So what what do you want to think about more uh, in your life? What What is it that you know uh, is not occupying your mind that needs to be? What thoughts tend to currently occupy your mind and uh, keep your, your mind, uh, you know, from being able to actually focus on healthier thoughts? What thoughts would you rather experience daily? And what can you do this year to incorporate more positive thoughts into your life? Some very basic questions. But uh, are you tired of thinking about not having enough? Are you tired of always thinking about how you're going to make ends meet. So if, if we want to try to create a change in our lives, what, what if we started thinking more about um, uh, healthier ways that we could move our life forward? But a lot of us don't have time to do that because I've still got to pay my bills for this week. And, um, and so it occupies our time. But maybe if we could just adjust our thinking a little bit, ask a different question. You know, if you had a magic wand and um, – and you all of a sudden had your bills being made, what would you spend your time thinking about, right? You still have to work. You still have to go, you know, to school. You still have to do everything you're supposed to be doing. But what would you, what would you spend your time thinking about? How do you want to feel differently this year is another thing. 
What feelings have haunted your last year? What feelings do you want to change? If the feeling is that you're constantly behind the eight ball, then um, what would you rather feel? And just to simply identify what you'd rather feel, it can go a very long way in your life. I want to feel more hope. I want to feel more excitement about what I'm doing. I want to feel less stress, but more excitement about my prospects. By the way, you can take those thoughts and track it back, or those feelings, I mean, and track it back to thoughts that lead you to feel that way. If you're hopeless feeling, there's probably thoughts that drive you to that hopelessness. And we want to start just evaluating it. So when I coach people, I always draw this out and I draw it in a circle. Thoughts are at the top. Feelings are on the right side. Doing action is on the bottom. And what we're trying to become is on the left side. And I actually walk everybody through what thoughts do you have? What feelings do you have? What actions are you taking? We could be asking right now, what, what do we want to become this year? What do we need to do? And maybe not even just do, maybe a more important thing is what do we want to be? What do we want to become? What is the key here, right? Because being very clear about what you want to become will also tell you very clearly what we should be doing. But if we had a magic wand and you could become anything you wanted to be, what would you want to be? I want to be a better grandparent. Now, the mere fact I want to be a better grandparent and uh, father-in-law, then that's something that helps me understand today what I should do. That also would help me understand what I, what kind of a feeling I need to create, what kind of uh, emotional, you know, situation I need to set up. And those are all critical. They're all important for me to know about. And also another question we could ask is, what do we want to be attuned to this year? I want to be focused and more attuned to, connected into um, a sense of connection to others. I want to be present more. I just feel it's I, I need to be more present. So simple things we could be looking at. What, do you, what relationships do you want to attune to? What do you want to become this year? What uh, feelings do you want to feel this year for the rest of the year? And what thoughts do you want to have more of? And just answer those questions. And then ask yourself one simple question. What's the most important thing I can do today to start getting there, to change my thinking, to change my feeling, to change my doing, to change what I'm becoming, to get attuned? It's just life, right? We just take it a day at a time and one question at a time. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be talking about trusting each other. How do you uh, manage uh, the trust but verify approach? Nan Russell is the author, a speaker, a mentor, and a workplace consultant. She's the former vice president of a multi-billion dollar company, uh, QVC, the Home Shopping Network. And uh, we talked to her a while ago about uh, the, the old trust but verify approach that we use with our relationships and with the people that are most important to us in our life. And, um, and, and she gave us some really cool insight. I began the interview by pointing out that if I don't trust you, it impacts everything I can ever do with you. 
That's really true. Unfortunately, we get it mixed up. It's one of those words that we interchange with a lot of things. Yeah. So while trust is essential, uh, we kind of make it more global than it really is. Yeah, talk about that. I mean, you wrote a wonderful article um, that is called The Problem, like with that trust and verify. That's what people always say. Look, I need to trust this person, but you you, you got to verify. You got to make sure you got to tr- you can trust them. That seems almost contradictory. It is, depending on what it refers to. And I think that's where people get confused. So if, you know, if it's a life or death situation, if you're you know, working on purity of pharmaceutical things that are going to affect people's livelihood and life, yeah. then you're going to want to trust but verify. So that's a whole different strategy than what most of us have in our day-to-day life. We're not worried about you know, safety and security issues that are life-threatening. And in that case, what that does is exactly what you said. You know, if I use a trust but verify approach, I'm really saying I don't really trust you. Yeah. Because I'm Prove gonna it. Keep, yeah, I'm going to keep following up. you got to earn it with me. And what we know now is, that we didn't know before is that, you know, trust, the, the kind of trust that works in relationships is relationship trust. And that is developed and created and evolves in very different ways. Yeah. It's um... – I mean, because that's what I've always wondered. Do you do you give trust? And and at some point you do by like by me letting my kids do something. I'm showing, okay, I trust you. I've trained you. I've I've trusted you. And or is it earned? And and there's always this weird debate. And really, it seems like it's the glue of our of our interpersonal relationships, isn't it? Trust is the thing that glues us together and that it almost allows us to have deeper relationships and you know by how the way trust goes is the way our relationship goes yeah it definitely is one of those things that is going to impact whether you have what i refer to as a genuine relationship yeah um or 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 not and you know one of the things you brought up is key and that's just sense of like, you know, how do we give trust and do we give trust and, and how does that work? Now, one of the, the misconceptions about trust has to do with the fact that, you know, it, it is kind of the, you know, some people see it like a screensaver. You know, I do it, I build it once and it's there. Um, and what we know is that, that trust really, in order to work in a relationship, whether it's with your kids or with your boss, um, it's, it has to be used as a verb. It's something you make. It's about actions, and it's also about accountability on the other side. So, but people think that I either trust you or I don't. Mm. Like it's a light switch. Yeah. And the way uh, relationship trust works is it's, it's really incremental over time, and there's accountability on the other side. So if you give your your kid a little bit of trust and you say, hey, you know, call me when you get there. Um, if they do, if they text you, if they let you know that, then you're going to give them a little bit more. If they don't, you're going to pull it in. Yeah. Um, and we do that all the time with different relationships that we have. And you see, I mean, you're an organizational leader. You, you see, though, that we could actually, you know, forge trust, the verb, in, in an organization and actually kind of drive it deep throughout the organization if, if I guess if we're approaching it right. Well, and that's one of the very exciting things 
that has happened out of what is chaos and some not good things during the Great Recession. And the good thing is that you, you add the things that happen to our economy with the changes in technology and the way people get information. And what we now know is that trust doesn't have to start from the top. It can start anywhere. And that people work for people and want to work in groups of people that they trust. So anybody, regardless of position, regardless of where they are in an organization, can, trust, can start their own pocket of trust. And, you know, that's where all the great things happen. All you have to do is look around any good organization and you'll see energy and fun and things that are occurring that aren't occurring other places. And you know that that's a pocket of trust. Oh, yeah. So a pocket of trust would be just maybe a team, a group that really works well together. They they do trust each other, um, that there is accountability to each other for results and, and for being trustworthy people. Yes. And they are all invested in that relationship, in whatever it is that needs to get done. That, that the 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 fuel for engagement, people talk about engagement being a problem at work or yeah. engagement in, in lots of environments. Um, engagement is a symptom. Lack of engagement is a symptom of a problem of distrust because you can't really be engaged <laughs> um, if you don't have a trusting environment yeah. to feel that. That is so true. And if you – if I dodge – I mean if I'm not actively engaged in doing something, then I'm going to lower trust – Anyway, and so so really that that is that that um, it, it's like it is a currency, isn't it? And it makes us more effective together, or it kind of weakens us depending on that space between. Yes, and and um, one of the things that's changed a lot dramatically in the way in which trust is used as a currency is the fact that now so much of what we need in organizations and in communities is for people to add their discretionary effort, provide their insights and ideas. Those are not things we can crowbar from people. People have to give them freely. And the only reason they're going to do that is if they feel um, kind of that genuine relationship and that trust that's there that says this is a mutually beneficial relationship. And that's that's one of the key components. Now talk about that. What what do you term a mutually – uh, or, or what do you term a mutually beneficial relationship? My needs are being met. Your needs are being met. What exactly makes it mutually beneficial? And, and make sure that I will add my discretionary efforts. There's, there's basic kinds of things, which is if, if I want the best for you, if, and that's, that's a huge if. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if I do, that's, that's clearly displayed by the behaviors that I have associated with not only the way I may interact with you, but the kind of information I decide to provide. So, so I use something called thoughtful transparency. And that means that if, if you're in a genuine relationship, you're providing the other person with the information that they need to have good integrity, to make good decisions, to create their own decisions about their life, you are realizing that they need to have that to do great work, to, to you know, show up and, and um, use their gifts in the world. And, and that orientation says it, it's never manipulative. It, it has a positive intention behind it. And there is an authenticity about the fact that um, you're kind of in it for the long term, I'm going to put long term in quotes, but um, of the relationship, 
meaning that it's not about one single outcome. It's about a long-term, you benefit, I benefit, we can do something good together. Yeah. You, you also have used the term um, authentic trust. What, what, does that, what does that mean? Is that kind of part of this, the, what you're talking about, that it's, it's, it really is me being into you? It's me truly wanting what's best for you. Yeah, authentic trust is the kind of trust that, that um, works. <laughs> yeah. um, there are lots of other kinds of trust, and, and I don't want to say or, or minimize the value of that, but authentic trust, otherwise referred to as relationship trust, is the kind of trust that, that you and I are talking about. It's the trust that comes with a verb. It comes with actions. It comes with wanting to build those kinds of genuine relationships and operate with, you know, not only kind of the, the, the best sense for both people, but we're not in it for our own. Uh, there's a bigger purpose. Mm. Um, and people who, who align behind the fact that, um, you know, they want to contribute to the world. They want to make a difference. That kind of trust that builds as, as a result of that in, in an organization or, or in a group um, is very powerful. It's also the kind of trust that can be, if broken, it can be redeveloped. Um, and it's not what often we think of trust. Most people define trust in a very basic terms, and they think of it more like the kind of trust we had as children. Um, where, you know, you, you, you sort of give absolute categorical trust to a parent or, or someone else in your life. That's not authentic trust. It realizes there's risks. And, it, you know, you have to make good judgments. You don't give the same amount of trust to everybody. You understand it has to be um, an ongoing developmental action hmm. and, and thoughtful. That was Nan Russell, um, again, uh, author, speaker, mentor, and workplace consultant, teaching us about uh, trust and authentic trust. Again, our goal on the show is to help all of us become a lot better at uh, being human, at being a, a, an effective, healthy person on this earth, and, and lifting those around us as we go. We will continue the journey, folks. More straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday to you. Yes, you are at it again. Another week. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Come on. We can do this together. Uh, doing what we can on the show to give you uh, the information, the news you need to make it through life. Today, we will be talking about scream-free parenting, how you don't need to uh, scream to get through your children and uh, and to get to your children, which would, by the way, be very handy in Buckingham Palace right now. That's right. Yeah. Does that apply to the new yeah, baby, the does. new prince? Yeah. You never. You don't need to scream at the new prince. Uh, um, out news out that uh, Kate Middleton and um, Prince William. Is that his name? Uh, is he, ooh, is I he, should know. Is this. he the official? I think so. Uh, they've had a child, a, a beautiful baby boy, born happy, healthy. Uh, mother's doing wonderful, and a town crier came out and screamed the news. I thought that was really cool. It's really cool. Terry was a little underwhelmed by it. 
I but, think Terry secretly loves the, the royal family. I he mean, does. you know how they say like love and hate aren't really opposites. No, they're very they're like they're just they're brother and sister. Yeah. Terry talks passionately about the royal family. Oh, I've never seen more passion come out of his mouth. And he also, by the way, he um, Terry not only loves it, he also loves the fashion of the Duchess of Cambridge. The purses. Uh, loves the purses, the shoes. the shoes. He loves talking about all of it. Yeah. But uh, they've had a, a cute little baby, um, the boy. The Duke of Cambridge was present for the birth of the couple's third child at 11 a.m. local time. Um, the baby weighed in at eight pounds seven ounces. That's kind of a it's a little it's a big little wow it's a little butterball, a little royal butterball. And the Queen, the Duke of Edinburgh, the Prince of Wales, the Duchess of Cornwall, Prince Henry, and members of both families have been informed and are delighted with the news. That's great. Isn't that great? That is great. It's such. Uh, it's been. It's been. Um, I mean, again, this is this child is now sixth in line of succession to the throne. So not a lot of pressure on him, really. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of hope that he never even has to think about it. You know. Yeah. You, I mean, you just five be people a kid. ahead of him. That's right. That's exactly right. Including um, uh, his father and his grandfather. Those. I mean, those are the ones that, and his older brother and his older sister. Wow, yeah. The funny thing is a lot of uh, more mature, older people are all behind him in line now. Hmm. He, he just uh, he just displaced a few people. So <laughs> anyway. Uh, I, think that's what, I think that's what Terry was most bitter about. Yeah. Here he comes. Don't, don't say anything. Um, one of the things that uh, Terry also loves about the first family in um, – oh, hi. Yes, go ahead. Oh, hey, Terry. Oh, yeah, we were just talking about how yeah, you no, love the first family. We were just family. talking politics. The, um, the Duchess of Cambridge, as you know, had a baby, she baby did. boy, and you can relax. Um, I can relax? Well, yeah. I, mean, I know you had the calendar up. No. Counting down her days, you um, watching everything you can. No, it's fine. Okay. I appreciate the thought, though. Yeah. Hey, also, sad news over the weekend, Avicii died. Yes. My, which, oh, like, yeah. totally... Uh, blew my son up. My uh, Avicii is a electronic dance and EDM kind of producer. Yeah, DJ. So it, it's the music that um, either you like it, yeah, or maybe your kids like it. If your kids like it, you probably don't like it because yeah. it might not be for you. But it's real. I mean, it's he's got some big hits as well. Yeah. So I mean, it's. And, and 28 years young. They, have they come out with a reason as to why Not he yet. died? It was just he's he's died. Uh, the family's asking for privacy, and that's all you've heard. He did stop. At one point, he backed off touring, because, and, yeah. he, and he put a letter out to his fans saying that it he wants quality of life. Touring, yeah. as much as he was doing as much work as he was doing, wasn't. He, leading him to that quality he, he wanted, so he backed He off. wasn't healthy and because he partied a lot. Apparently, he had a lot of anxiety. So then that led to other things and drinking. And then the drinking eventually led to pancreatitis, which is a very – it's a dangerous thing that can happen to you. And um, But then they don't have a lot of new details out yet. They have done some autopsies, and I guess they're saying there wasn't any criminal uh, suspicion anymore that, to his death. Um, but they haven't necessarily said much more. He was a superstar DJ, died in Oma, Oma, Oman. Mm-hmm. Um, man, it's sad. But again, 28 years young and talented. And I mean, you'd know some of his music. It's I was pretty watching, popular music. What was I watching? CBS. CBS News, which to me screams old, even though I watch <laughs> it every day. And they were explaining, they go, if you don't know who this person is, you've heard a song. He has a song, Wake Me Up. Yeah. That's way popular. And then it's a mix of 
I mean, it's funny. He doesn't even sing, right? So he no. has people come in and sing, and then he mixes, mixes it, it all and, and does his old DJ. So if you touch. haven't heard from, heard of him, you've you've heard his music. Oh yeah, it's so ingrained, and it's yeah. in commercials, and everyone's using it because it's kind of a happy, yeah, it's a dance. Song. It's always about the dance tempo, and it gets you moving. And yeah, they're good beats. They're really they're popular. really good beats. So again, it's it's one of these things where you lose another young star. Mm. Um, Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? What other headlines are out there? While uh, President Trump has in public enthusiastically praised North Korean leader Kim Jong-un Saturday's announcement that he would cease nuclear and missile testing and shutter a testing site behind closed doors, the Trump administration is reportedly unsure of how to interpret Kim's offer. White House aides are skeptical of the freeze proposal. The Washington Post and New York Times both reported Saturday evening they worry Kim's concession will create an illusion of cooperation without making all the changes, including total denuclearization, which many experts consider to be an unrealistic aim. The administration hopes to secure an upcoming Trump Kim talks. They hope ah. to get some concessions, but they're not sure what they can get because they're not. He's making a lot of promises, but none of them are like, I am doing this. It's like, how about I propose this? And right. then you guys don't have to pull out your troops. You can leave all your troops in South Korea. We'll get rid of our missiles. Does that sound like an idea? It's just a start. We'll get it going. Yeah. But they all are turning the music off in the DMZ, they which are? is a really, I mean, no more do you have to listen to Gangnam style. The North and South will meet later this week. So there's some progress there. We know that uh, Mike Pompeo has been over there having some initial talks trying to you figure out You know what's location. interesting? China's in on it wants in, and wants it done. Japan wants it done. All these uh, neighbors want it done now. And it's interesting that maybe this all could have really happened 20 years ago if we somehow could have gotten China more involved. And I mean, right. something's happening. Something's different. Sure. Or maybe it's just that Kim Jong-un wants. Or someone with Twitter tripped into something and is, yeah. you know, it's working. Something's happening. It was something different by disrupting the status quo. Right. Uh, Trump's week is very full of uh, foreign policy, foreign relations type activities. He's meeting with France, the French uh, President Macron today. Uh, Angela Merkel from Germany is coming in later yeah. this week. There's going to be a state dinner. It's the first one since he's been president with the French uh, president as his now, guest. By the way, I know you love following state dinners. No, not really, but... Seating assignments, table Yeah, doilies settings. are fine. I mean, the food's kind of interesting at times, but then again, mostly not. Because it's yeah. mostly just sort of uh, chicken and steak. But we will give you an Depends update. Depends if the prince is going to be there. Yeah, someone totally. walks in and goes, I'll have the fish. You know, it's just okay. one of those types of things. Salmon so, or steak? Uh, a Trump briefing. This is kind of some insight into how uh, Trump's foreign policy style. Okay. So Trump's uh, briefing is completely different from those of his predecessors, his presidential intelligence briefing. He doesn't yeah. want briefing books or long speeches about policy. Besides the news of the day, he almost always asks the following questions before most foreign leaders uh, leader meetings. What is the trade deficit with that foreign country? How big is their army and defense spending? And to what extent is America picking up their, their tab? And in some cases, how much foreign aid is the U.S. spending on the country? To put simply, what are we doing for them, and how much are they contributing in return? Wow. Those are kind of his thoughts. Instead of figuring out all the minutiae and the details, he yeah. wants to know what are we giving them, and what are we getting in return. And by the way, each one of those are the strings he could pull, right? Right. Oh, so you want more you know, funding? Okay. What are you going to do for us? Put simply, what we are, what are we doing for them? How, how much are they contributing in return? One yeah. hard lesson Trump staff learned, always find out whether the leader he is meeting has said mean things about him. Because he'll know. Trump was free. Well, he doesn't know. That's the oh, problem. Oh, he doesn't Trump know. was furious with his national security team for not telling him in advance of his meeting last year with the Greek prime minister. 
that he had said during a presidential campaign that Trump represents an evil ideology. At Trump's joint press conference with the Greek leader, Fox reporter John Roberts quoted the brutal things that he had said about Trump, the Greek leader, and uh, the president blew up at his team afterwards for not finding this out before and briefing him in advance. He felt blindsided that this guy had said a bunch of bad things about him. Yeah, you don't want to be embarrassed and then have to, like, take out the prince or whatever. Right. You don't want to stand there in a meeting and be like, what am I supposed to do? Uh, Uh, Michael Bloomberg, former New York uh, City mayor and current uh, U.N. special envoy for climate change, has pledged to write a $4.5 million check to cover Washington, D.C.'s financial commitment to the Paris Climate Accord after President Trump withdrew last year. Speaking on CBS Face the Nation Sunday, Bloomberg said the money would come out of his pocket personally. America made a commitment. Wow. And as an American, if the government's not going to do it, we all have a responsibility, he said. I am able to do it. I'm going to send them a check for the monies That's nice, that America man. had promised to the organization as though they got it from the federal government. That's very nice of him. U.S. became the only country to reject the agreement last year after Trump claimed it placed an unfair burden on Washington. That's um, So, by the way, I mean, if he's going to be like that, there's probably a lot of agreements we've stiffed people on. Right. Maybe he could start picking up those. Maybe so. I'm like, all right, pay. You can go ahead and pay the, the yeah. fee. I guess. I yeah, just pay it. It's something that uh, French President Macron will be talking with the president about today, about the yeah. Paris Climate Accords. And it sounds that. like Mr. Bloomberg might be looking at a, a run. Hasn't has been thinking about running or talking about well, it? Well, but I think I think he was like, yeah, I don't want to get involved in that. And now yeah. he sees President Trump doing it, and no, now everyone is like, there's no one the Democrats could really put up that could. And Bloomberg's probably actually a billionaire. Yeah, he actually apparently is a billionaire. Whereas Trump apparently called the Forbes 500 list editors several years ago and faked a name and got on the list. Oh, really? He called, you know how he calls us his own uh, PR guy? There's yeah. that history of that? Yeah, that guy. There's a story out last week from Forbes as the reporter's like, by the way, the president called faked being a PR guy and gave us information and somehow got on the list. And we found out after printing. Well, but got Forbes the- needs to be careful because that means they have shoddy journalism. Well, that's the other <laughs> That was really funny. Finally, a speed camera in western Switzerland had snapped a duck twice within a period of three days, Swiss police said Friday. So one of those speed trap cameras. The camera picked up the first offense as the duck shot through the air at 13 miles per hour over the speed limit for vehicles. The duck was traveling in a low-altitude flight at 32 miles per hour in an 18-mile-per-hour zone. Local police said uh, three days later, the same camera snapped a duck. They're not sure if it's if it's the similar duck or if there's some sort oh, of these ducks. flock of offenders that yeah. are out there speeding around. The duck or ducks were luckily escaped the hefty bill. They said they can't really track down which duck it is. Was that pun intended? What? They escaped the hefty bill? Probably. Uh, speeding the, the uh, so I don't know. It's, it's a funny story. The interesting story, though, is if you are caught speeding in a populated area. Yeah. Uh, in Switzerland, it can result in an official police complaint, a fine, and a minimum of one-month driving ban. Oh, really? Very strict over there. Sw- the Switzerland calculates fines based on the offender's wealth. In 2010, it billed a Swiss driver some $290,000 for clocking 85 oh, miles per hour. Guy. 80, wow. He's going 85 and a 49. <laughs> Almost $300,000 because he was wealthy. So they base the fine upon your wealth because it'll hurt more. Well, it also incentivizes you if you are a speeder that you need to just not be wealthy. Ah, well, yeah, there you go. And you won't be. You won't be, yeah, because you'll just give keep it a little time. losing it. That's well, kind of cool, though, because 
Yeah, if you well, uh, it's cool if you don't have any money. Yeah, it's really cool. But then you know that like the rich people who won't be affected by a fine like that still will be. They're also going to follow the law. They're going to feel the yeah. pain. Yeah, we should feel it equally. Great stuff. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about how to have scream-free parenting. You don't have to yell. There's other ways to get to the kids and to influence them in healthier ways. Uh, Stick with us. More straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Parenting is full of stress and sometimes screaming, but getting flustered or angry is not the best way to react to these stressful situations, is it? So instead, we need to take a step back, think about the situation, and then calmly respond. And uh, here to help us through our parenting uh, troubles and uh, do it in a scream-free way is Hal Runkle. He's a New York Times bestseller, best-selling author of the book Scream-Free Parenting and the founder of the Pause Platform, which is here to teach us to be a calmer parent. Hal, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. This is a this is a, a needed needed topic. Talk about um, scream free parenting. I mean, some parents do scream, and and some people, and that's you know that's hurtful, harmful. Some just walk away. Either way, it's a reaction. But you're trying to help us figure out how to manage our anxiety and our conflict and our stress. Yes, and the reality is, you know, most parents do lose it at yeah. one point or another. And, and like, you're, you're right, there's more than one way to lose it. There's actually a University of New Hampshire study that says 98% of all parents have unleashed a psychologically damaging outburst towards each of their children before the age of five. <laughs> 90, I mean, I shouldn't we, laugh, but it's, it's, it's pretty yeah, universal, so isn't know, it? Yeah, and we know the other 2% are just lying about it. Yeah, right? that's so right. We've all lost it with our kids and and it's because you know what our kids can push our buttons like nobody else they yeah. know exactly what buttons to push at the worst times right yeah times we don't need them to push them but what we try and do at screen free is help ask the question well how did i give my kids such easy access to my remote control in the first place interesting yeah because we do what makes my we give it yeah. up don't we we abdicate it we turn it over and we let them um, start to kind of push those buttons. And how they do it is whenever we think we have a remote control on them. So most of us as parents think, well, I have control, and it's my job to tell them what to do. And what we don't like to think about is, well, who then decides whether or not they do it? Well, they do. So I hear from parents all the time, well, you know, I, I don't want my kids making decisions. Well, who's going to decide whether or not they follow your orders? Mm-hmm. They do. So you're already expecting them to make decisions. But what we're trying to do is help empower our kids to make decisions by saying, look, you can do this or you can choose not to. I'm not going to lose it either way. Why? Because you're not that powerful. And so take, take an instance like your kid talking rudely. And people hate backtalk, right? Oh, yeah. he's backtalking. And I got to stop that. Well, how are you going to stop that? Unless I made him physically unable to speak, which I was tempted to do, my son can talk to me any way he wants to. That's up to him. Now, how I respond to how he talks to me is completely up to me. But if I need him to speak respectfully to me, if I need him to 
to honor me, if I need that from him, then guess who is in charge? Yeah. He is. Yeah. And I'm at his mercy. The mercy of the least mature person in that relationship is now in charge of the relationship. And so one of the great things about learning to calm our anxiety first is I don't give him that much power. And so here's what it can look like. Hey, dude, you can talk rudely to me if you want. I'm not in control of what comes out of your mouth. You are. So as having that control, you have a choice. You can talk rudely to me or you can choose to stop this now and walk away. Now, here's what's happened. If you're going to if you're going to continue and I'm not angry in any way, but if you continue, then one, it's not going to change my mind because I think he, you know, he's upset because I told him no or something. Two, it's not going to make me mad because you're not that powerful. And three, if you keep it up, then you're going to lose access. You're going to lose screen time for 24 hours. Hmm. So go right, go right ahead. So it won't change my mind. It won't. Uh, what were what were the three things? Make me up, it won't it, make me it upset. It won't make me upset because you're not that powerful. And three is you will uh, suffer some consequence for your action. Hmm. Well, the one thing you won't do is have me mad at you because you know what? That's not helping in any way. And I'm not going to take the actions of a five-year-old personally. Yeah. That's so great. And, and by you saying, and it won't make me mad at you, um, also yeah. reinforces that I'll love you no matter what, but you have a big choice here. Yes, exactly. And that's what I want to convey to them is, look, this has nothing to do with our relationship. Because the reality is kids are testing us. They're testing their parents all the time. And we can hate this, right? Why are they testing me all the time? But here's the deal. If they're testing us, it's just because they want to be able to trust us. It's like if I were walking out onto a footbridge, right, over a gorge, I'm going to test that bridge before I fully put my weight on it, right? I'm going to shake it. I'm going to stomp on it, right? I'm going to see, can it hold me? I don't have a personal vendetta against the bridge. I don't disrespect the bridge by testing it. I'm just testing it because I want to be able to trust it. That's the exact same thing that's happening when our kids test us, is they want to know, can I trust you to be a leader? Can I trust you to be calm? Can I trust you to be the adult in this situation, no matter how childishly I act? Hmm. It's so true. And um, a lot of times we do... We we turn it over. We we literally start following yeah. the lead of the least emotionally stable person in the room, the five-year-old. Exactly, right? And we're not even really aware that we do that. But every time we say something like, look, if you would just do it the first time, I wouldn't have to yell. Right. Right? If you would just obey me and respect me, then I wouldn't have to yell, which – what we're saying when we say that, we don't even realize it, but what we're really communicating is, look, I need you to behave better because I can't. Yeah. That's true. And huh? I wonder why, wonder why they don't respect us. And, and yeah, we're, we, they know we're not in control, so we're trying to get our control by getting them to stimulate us positively only. Only give us good things yes. to deal with. Yes, and obey us so that we don't have to be anxious. And that's when we get in trouble, is when we need them to behave a certain way in order to calm our anxiety. And that's handing them our remote control. And it's not fair to them or to us. It just makes life much, much more difficult. So Scream Free really is just about learning to be a grown-up, regardless of how my kids are acting. Or we have 
Scream Free Marriage, we have Scream Free Leadership. It's all about this idea that once I regain control of me, then I can actually influence others. But if I need them to behave a certain way in order to manage my emotions, then actually they're the ones influencing me. Is, is, this, is this anxiety you're talking about that we have, which is why we turn to control, is it because we actually have anxiety or is it just situational anxiety because we're in a we're in a uh, we're in a dual relationship, a, a partnership that we are trying, but we only have half the control. So is it is it based on the relationship that we have the anxiety, or is it actually anxiety we have, or both? Well, yeah, you're you're not going to like my answer because it's both. Yeah. And, but what I want you to hear though is I'm not di- we're not talking about the diagnosable no. anxiety. It's stress, right? Right. It's just the normal stress that we feel, and it's it. And I like the term stress because it's what we feel when we're underneath the bar at the gym. That is stress, right? But that's the only way we actually grow muscles. Yeah. If we never have any resistance, if we never have any stress, then we don't actually grow. And so much of us are banging our heads against the wall, you know, not so much because of our kids or because of our spouse. It's because, well, we think parenting shouldn't be this hard. Well, we think marriage shouldn't be this difficult. And that's like saying weightlifting shouldn't be hard. Mm-hmm. It's so true. It's designed to be difficult, designed to be stressful, because that's what helps us grow. And so, like, I was just all day yesterday, I was in Arkansas doing a series of talks with folks. And and the guy was like, hey, do you have any exercises for me to uh, learn how to do this? And, like, he was sitting right next to his teenage son and said, yeah, the, the, the guy sitting right next to you is about to give you 10 tests tonight. <laughs> you know, you are going to get plenty of chances and how you respond. So your teenage son rolls his eyes. Do you freak out? Right? Or do you take that personally or just realize that's what a teenage son's doing? You know, if, if I said it's time to do the dishes and he rolls his eyes while he's doing the dishes, why do I protest that? Yeah, who cares? He's doing the dishes. Right. right? Who cares? Right. You, know? yeah. you just say. Uh, I remember I, I adopted this phrase, and this helped me a lot, but when I would tell my kids to do something when they were growing up, uh, hey, it's time to take out the trash. I am. I just said, good. Good. Instead of, no, take out the trash and respect me and yeah. appreciate me and make me feel less insecure and cure everything about me. Yeah. It's, it really <laughs> is. It is this um, – it's, it's, it's not even like we, we want them to do it, but we want them to do it – with the right tone, the right way, the and is that yeah. that's just again that's just control, or is that just that we are because sometimes it is is our anxiety just the fear that boy you can try to do this with me, but you better not do that with your next boss. I mean, is it is Part it our of fear of is. their future, or is it really more about yeah. us? No, I think that it's more about us. It's usually always about us, but I think there is that the fear of the future. Here's the deal, though. Uh, Everyone I know has kids who behave better around other parents than they do them. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I, I, or they behave better around their teachers than they do them. They're, they're behaving better around their – they're going to behave better around their boss. And, and if that's the case, then you can get frustrated. Well, man, we just get the scraps. You know, we, we don't get the best treatment from them. Or you can recognize, look, if they're behaving better outside of my home, well, that means I'm doing something right because that is the future. Right, exactly. Outside my home. Right. We're not training them to live here with us. We're training them to leave here from us so they can go and enjoy their own life. So we get 
so many times we'll justify our anxiety and reactivity because, like you said, of this fear of their future. But you know what? When we're freaking out all the time, what we're just training them is we're training them that this is how adults behave. Right. Adults freak out. Right? Well, I mean, th- that's got to create want- a scary idea in their mind. Man, this is what adults are like? What a nightmare. Right. It is. It is. And unfortunately, it's what they see on television. I mean, responsible behavior in the midst of a conflict is not what's going to get on the airwaves. You know, you're never going to see on a news program with talking heads one guy say, you know what? I've never thought about that. That's a really good idea. I'll have to think about that. Thank you for bringing that up. Right. That's never going to happen, right? Instead, it's freaking out. And you always say this. And that's, of course, what you're going to say. Da 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 da. And then the other person does the same thing because that's what, you know, that's what leads mm-hmm. that sort of reactivity. I see it everywhere. And what the world needs most right now, I believe, are adults. Oh, it's so true, isn't it? Behave, behaving like adults in leadership positions, right? Able to be calm no matter what. Able to think through things and not react, but respond instead. And that's what we can do by, first of all, recognizing my number one job with my kids is to be the adult in every situation. And my number one job with kids is not to keep them kids. Yeah. My job is not. And it's actually, I've just been convicted recently that we just adopted the wrong phrase to describe parenting. We, we said it's raising kids. Right. That's just a, it's just a dumb phrase. I mean, a corn farmer is not raising niblets. <laughs> right. <laughs> raising kernels, right? He's right. raising corn. A tree farmer is not raising saplings. He's raising trees. So yeah. why do we say we're raising kids? It makes no sense. And then we complain about the millennial generation. These guys, they are not growing up, right? They're not mature. They're not taking responsibility for themselves. Well, we can't raise kids, raise kids, raise kids, and then complain. That's all we end up with. So that's our fault. We're raising adults. Exactly. So what does it look like? So let them be a, yeah, treat them like that. That's cool. Yeah. Hold them to responsible, which means you don't bark orders at them all the time. You actually let them know what their choices are in a situation and what their choices are not. So, you know, you don't have a choice as to whether we're going to preschool or when we're leaving in 10 minutes from preschool. You do have a choice as to how we get in the car. We can get in the car the easy way or the hard way. That's totally up to you. And I'm okay with either one. And the easy way is we walk hand in hand. Well, no, we skip hand in hand through the house, out to the car. You get in your car seat and we listen to whatever music, you know, the Frozen soundtrack on the way, whatever you want to listen to. What's the hard way? Well, the hard way is you fight me and I pick you up and uh, you do that spider thing where you grab everything in the house on the way out of the house, you know. And then when we get to the car seat, you do that plank thing with your body, (laughs) you know. And I will gladly push down on your pelvis and get we'll, strapped in. And you're locked in. And then, yes. And then we're going to listen to the Beatles on the way. So <laughs> it's up to you. And, you're, and, and you'll be at, and you'll be at preschool either way. Exactly. And I am not going to take either one of these choices personally because my job is to help you become a good decision maker. And I don't do that by just telling you what to do all the time. Oh, that is. I do that so by helping. You know, and that's just basic good leadership. Don't tell everybody what to do. Help them learn to take ownership of their situation so that you're creating new leaders. And that's how a company grows. That's how families grow new adults. 
So true. Is it, um, again, just so you know, we're speaking with uh, Hal Runkle, who is a New York Times bestseller of the book Scream Free Parenting. You can also go to his website, uh, screamfree.com, um, uh, and, and learn more about the, the Scream Free approach to life. You can get his daily blog there as well, his uh, books and um, and all of that, uh, all that good stuff. Uh, Hal, when you look at this, um, what, what's what's cool about it is it's just so you're so nonchalant about it. But I guess part of the problem is if I'm already reacting, if I'm already freaking out inside, the kid's probably already won, hmm. hasn't he? You I know, mean, because won't he well, see it in me? Well, not if I'm working hard on it. I mean, this is not about not freaking out on the inside. Because we're going to do that, and it's about managing those emotions. It's not about stifling them or eliminating them. It's about managing them. And that means uh, that's what every good leader has to do. I've got, okay, I'm feeling anxious. I've got to name that feeling. I'm feeling this. I'm wondering why. I'm taking this personally. Why am I taking He got a D. That's his grade. That's not my grade. We've got to have those internal conversations so that our external conversations can be much, much calmer. And Again, this is not how I feel. So, you know, my son says, Dad, don't pick me up from school today. Well, how come? Stupid teacher gave me detention. I hate that mm-hmm. teacher. Now, what I want to say, what do I want to say? What I'm feeling on the inside is you're a moron. What did you do this time? And if you hate her, I guarantee the feeling is mutual. That's what I want to say. <laughs> right. Right. But I can't say that if I want to be a leader. So I, for me, I developed my own pause button was, huh. Tell me more about that. Tell me more. This, it gave me the chance to calm my anxiety and let him know that I am approachable because approachable parents have coachable kids. Approachable leaders have coachable followers. So I want to communicate I'm approachable. So, hey, tell, tell me more. Now, again, I'm feeling going nuts. It's like the duck, right? That looks so serene on top of the water and that their little flippers underneath the water are going crazy. Yeah. That's sometimes how it is, but that's what it means to be an adult is learn to manage our emotions instead of trying to control other people so that we can manage this so that they can manage our emotions. That's so true. And, and then all of a sudden uh, when they succeed at managing their own life, it's theirs. They already own it. It's not something that they then have to go learn because we've been giving it to them. They now right. have their own life. My, that's beautiful. I, I love the way you said that. It's my uh, wife teaches seniors in high school, and she has for better part of 20 years. And she always wanted to meet the parents of the kids, the students that she really, really liked a lot and respected. And she said, tell the story of one girl that she likes. She's just, she wasn't, you know, valedictorian or anything. She was just very comfortable in her own skin. She was curious about life. She, she just was mature and uh, fun loving at the same time. And so she wanted to meet the mom. She met the mom. She's like, I love your daughter. I think just think she's just so, so cool. Right. And the, the mom's response just floored her said, I know, right. I'm just so glad I get to know her. Mm. That's cool. There was no, no ownership of that. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it, that, that's her. That's a life. Like you just said, they're a life on their own. So life good. Of their own. That's right. Which is what we're preparing them for. Not this. Well, you know, you owe me. You know. Yeah. Uh, you, you better be grateful. 
and me being resentful, those are all my immature emotions. I'm not saying I don't feel those things. Sure. I absolutely do. I feel like they're ungrateful. Nobody appreciates me for all the sacrifices I make. Yeah, okay. That's not a very mature way to express myself. I've got to learn to calm those anxieties and so that I can lead. And this is what the world needs more of. Instead of us just throwing our emotions out there and needing everybody else to change for our benefit, what does it look like for us to rein ourselves in, recognize that they're just testing us so that they can trust us, and us learning how to pass that test? Mm. Love it, man, Hal. That is so good. And really, it's the core, I think, to everything, like you're saying, the core to the parenting relationship, the core to our marriage relationships. Control yourself. Get yourself, get your house in order first. Hal Runkle is his name. Again, uh, the the author of the Scream Free Parenting book and also the founder of the Pause Platform to teach us to be a calmer parent, a calmer person. Go check out the, the ScreamFree.com. Go look up Hal Runkle as well. Honestly, wonderful resource and blog, uh, awesome blogs there to learn more uh, for how to parent. And be the kind of person you want. In the end, then you control your own emotion, and you can have peace finally. How great is that? We'll continue the journey. Do a little Coach's Corner straight ahead. Actually, some empty news first. Uh, This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, folks. You know, we always like to uh, talk about some of the headlines that you don't always hear about. A suspect, a teenager, um, saying the theme for the television show Cops after he was arrested in a, in a high-speed chase in New Jersey. Police report the 16-year-old driver was uh, driving a stolen vehicle when the officers gave chase on Saturday. Officers pursued the vehicle through a golf course before the suspect bailed out. He can be heard singing on dash cam, bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? Um, he, by the way, brought his own track. That's pretty cool. Wow. Prepared. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times they have to play that for you. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, he obviously. Uh, and you wonder, was that going through his head the entire time he's driving? Well, when you get a song course. stuck in your head, you know, you really just yeah. you can't get it out. Don't you hate that? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so great. Can you imagine? What are the cops thinking? Like, oh, yeah, we got you, man. Do they hear that all the time, do you think? I doubt it. I don't know that I'd taunt cops that way because sometimes those get pretty rough. Hey, uh, speaking of rough, how about four baboons escaping from a research facility in Texas? Oh, hate that. Yeah. They used the old barrel trick. They used a barrel to escape from the facility in Texas on the weekend. As startled motorists took video of the primates running alongside the road, Texas Biomedical Research Institute officials said three of the baboons were captured within 30 minutes after they escaped from their enclosure and got behind a perimeter fence. A fourth baboon was captured after it led researchers on a wild goose chase down a busy road. Eyewitness Janelle Booten said uh, the baboon stopped at one point and he was just looking and then he darted into the bushes and these guys are frazzled and they're freaking out, Miss Booten said. She uh, said, you can tell that the workers were panicking because they didn't want him, the animal, to get hurt because they were trying their best to quarantine him, but uh, he wasn't having any of it. By the way, didn't you see a scene of this, like in Escape from the, uh, the what is it, uh, Escape what was it? The Apes. The From Apes the movie. Planet of the Apes? Planet of the Apes movie. I haven't seen it yet. 
But maybe I will now. I mean, but this sounds pretty good. Can I, I just watch that video of the? This is the beginning of like baboon chase. Yeah, this is the beginning of a really scary movie. Terry, in fact, is licking his chops. Like this is maybe one of these animals had been injected with a special whatever. Oh, hmm. this is how the monkeys take over. Terry says this is like how this occurs in the real world. This is, know, none of us uh, know what's going on behind. Because if scenes. that baboon had bit, maybe the, it's got a special power. It bites somebody, and then that person turns into a baboon superhero. Wow. Yeah. And we're just these little civilians on the ground. We'll never know. We have no idea. Our memories have probably already been wiped. But you know that there was a bunch of black ops people, helicopters circling. Yeah. Wow. Scary. Hey, a trailer containing 8,000 Disneyland tickets has been stolen in California. So if if anybody's like offering discounted tickets, be careful. (laughs) Investigators in California say the tickets were among the items in a trailer stolen from the California Future Farmers of America. California Highway Patrol said the Wells uh, Cargo trailer was stolen at about 3.10 a.m. Wednesday. And uh, the FFA said the trailer was loaded with materials intended for the 90th Annual State Future Farmers of America Conference in Southern California. The items inside the trailer included 8,000 Disneyland tickets, audiovisual equipment awards and registration papers. And uh, now what? Now these were stolen tickets that they were going to sell. Aw. It's a sad day. That is sad. Poor future farmers of America. But be careful. Don't be buying buying any uh, tickets, you know, out of the back of some combine somewhere. Yeah. Is that what they call them? Some guy, like, comes up with a jacket. Hey, do you want to buy a Disneyland ticket? A little FFA jacket. Hey. (laughs) Oh, even worse. I can get you in real cheap. Do you want some audio equipment with that? (laughs) I got some certificates, too. Oh, that is so sad. But <laughs> totally true. So, uh, you know, just do what you can to help the future farmers of America in California. They need a little uh, positive light now. Hey, we're going to take a break up next. Speaking of positive light, we'll be visiting our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. We're going to find out what's coming up on their show in just 10 short minutes from now and, uh, and then do a little uh, hero story. Again, show you the hope in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, it's time now to send it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation and find out what's coming up on their show uh, in just about eight minutes from now. Spencer and Jerem, are you there, gentlemen? We're here. Hi, doctor. <laughs> Hello, my friends. I can't promise I've slept much, but I'm here. I know. You, came, you came in a little uh, – you were obviously distracted. I saw you. I watched you walk in. And I watched when you walked in. This is the first morning that I have come back to work, like, fully, where my wife is on her own with three children. Because she had my mother-in-law or me over the last two and a half weeks-ish. This this is the first challenge for her today. (laughs) Paternity leave is over. Emotions were high. Congratulations to you, by the way. Thank you. How do you do it with... More than two children. Well, you just you all you have to do is get through the first ten years. Then oh, it's really great. easy. It's a first lot 18, easier. And now. then you're like, you're out of here. Yeah, it's so <laughs> much. It's I want to so see you easier. occasionally. <laughs> hey, by the way, you guys are you're in a fine group um, because they just uh, the Buckingham Palace just announced that a new prince was born. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw something uh, on social media about yes. uh, <laughs> a new prince is born. 
The Kensington has gone. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you. You guys You guys both seem very royal to me now. Yes. <laughs> a you... royal decree has been put forth. There, there was a town crier that made the announcement. Seriously? Yeah, just like that. It sounded just like that. There has been a new royal born. <laughs> Are you guys going to bring I'm that? I'm so glad we left that place, man. <laughs> I know. Are you going to bring that up on your show today? 1700s. This is a great move. I know. Maybe. It's, Maybe. I, I think it's a, better, Upgrade. it's a better day and age. Hey, I wanted to ask you both. Uh, I know she's been on your show, Shannon Evans. Oh, she's a baller. Did you? And she, she what, came in second at Nationals. Um, but did you see this Friday night? She she nails it, has a 9.9 score on the, her uneven bars routine, and doesn't have a team to go run to because she's in the individual category. Yeah. So the Utes kind of give her five and help her celebrate. That was cool. They, they can get along. They adopted her for the weekend, if you will. That's weekend. awesome. Now, is that – do you think it's – do you think the guys would have done the same thing? No. Probably not. A little yeah. more machismo there. Yeah, BYU the- hasn't had an All-American in gymnastics in 14 years. She finished oh, wow. seventh, by the way, which is still excellent. Oh, did second she finish? Team, oh, second, second team All-American. Team, yeah. yeah, but second team All-American. Incredible. Seventh place overall. That yeah, is incredible. And, and we're going to talk about um, – that was – I would say that's an overachievement from her. It was not oh. expected that really? she would finish top ten at the beginning of the year. So the whole gymnastics squad overachieved this Absolutely. Year. It's awesome. Overachieving is good, too, because that means – uh, you're surprised and excited. Like meeting yeah. high expectations yeah. is not as fun as overachieving. You're like, oh, they did better than we thought. Yeah. So we're going to discuss the biggest overachievement <gasps> in BYU sports of the past calendar year. Mm-hmm. Excellent. One of the topics we'll discuss. I mean, I think the biggest overachievement was getting you two guys in tuxedos the other day to celebrate. Fitting into the yeah. slim fit. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah totally. that, that was a big achievement. Uh, us carrying the football season. Uh-huh. <laughs> I thought that was a big overachievement. Single-handedly. Yeah, yeah, that was amazing. Somehow surviving that. Yeah, I don't guys... want to pat myself on the back, but uh, I do have two hands. Um, <laughs> that's among other, uh, yeah, many what? topics. to just, Pro Football Focus thinks yeah. there could be multiple draft picks for BYU football this weekend. That hasn't happened in almost a decade. So will it happen? We'll discuss that. It's exciting. It's a and good Men's show. volleyball. They won the MPSF tournament oh, title. I know. Uh, they are the two seed. We're going to have Sean Olmstead, the head coach, in studio. Is he bringing us a new trophy for our set? And what does he think of the draw, potentially a fourth matchup with UCLA in the semis? By the way, it's at UCLA. We Ooh. have the 2016 MPSF championship trophy on the desk. It's been two <gasps> years. That's pretty that's It's time pretty for an upgrade. upgrade. That's pretty big. That's pretty big. Well, guys, uh, it's going to be a good show. I can already tell. We love having you on our show. So, folks, about four minutes from now, you can just sit back. If you want, turn on the TV. Go right ahead because then you can see the rugged good looks of Spencer and Jerem. But if you don't want to dare do that or risk that, just ease into BYU Radio and just go for another hour. Good stuff. Hey, it's time for our hero story. We always like to start with a hero or end with the hero of the day. Our hero is uh, a classmate from nearly 50 years ago, crosses the country to donate a kidney. Kenneth Walker emailed his former D.C. high school classmates last November asking for a kidney. He knew it was a stretch. Walker made the plea to his fellow Archbishop Carroll High School 1969 alumni, most of whom he had not spoken to in decades. But one alum who lives across the country responded within minutes, I'll take any test you need, said Charlie Ball, uh, who now lives in California. On April 16, Walker receives Ball's uh, kidney during a transplant surgery in George Washington University Hospital. The surgery went well and uh man alive ended up uh 
seriously, saving the life of his friend that he hasn't seen for a year. Then a friend from high school suggested that Walker send an email to their alumni group. He took that advice, and because of taking that simple advice, he now has the pleasant surprise of Ball uh, being able to, to give him his kidney. After surgery, the donated kidney started to work immediately in Walker's body. Ball's kidney was surprisingly young, uh, in a very good, in very good shape for someone who was more than 60 years old. Ball said he was happy to know he was healthier than he thought. And I mentioned to, to some of my relatives that, uh, you know what, in the end, it, it's, it's people crossing uh, racial boundaries. Uh, one of them's a white guy. One of them's a black guy. And guess what? It still shows unity and love and care for each other. That was a comment that Walker made. He said, man, even though he's a white guy, I'll still give him my kidney. Cool stuff, folks. Those are heroes. And that's what life's about. That's our show. That's uh, all we got for you. We'll be back again tomorrow. BYU Sports Nation is straight ahead.